0: desert, Boulder, Colorado. This is Jonathan Zapp. Welcome to ZappOracle.com and podcast recording of The Path of the Numinous, Living and Working with the Creative Muse. This document was originally written in 2005, but I'm recording it, um, the podcast, January 16th of 2011. If you give birth to the genius within you, it will free you. If you do not give birth to the genius within you, it will destroy you. And that was said by Jesus in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Frequently, I find myself giving advice on relating to the creative process or muse, and the muse seems to be requiring me, at this moment, to commit my point of view to writing. To ground my philosophy of relating to the muse, I am going to present numerous personal examples in an often tumultuous lifelong relationship with the creative process. My purpose is not mainly autobiographical, but to illustrate the principles I have learned with the real-life cases that instructed me. Also, since this essay is both about relating to the muse and inspired by the muse, I will allow the muse to take me off onto unplanned tangents. What is the muse? The word muse, used in this context, may for some people have the ring of an overblown figure of speech with a slightly antique ring to it. Muse comes from Greek mythology, and the concise Oxford Dictionary defines the word one of the nine goddesses, the daughters of Zeus and Nemanus, who inspire poetry, music, drama, etc. An alternate term is daemon, D-A-I-M-O-N. A A daimon is a spirit, not necessarily evil, and I'm particularly referring to the sense in which Socrates used the word, which was to refer to his divine inner voice. The American Heritage Dictionary gives a secondary uh, definition of daemon: an attendant spirit, a genius. Some people refer to the demanding creative spirit in in a gifted person as their genius. The spirit, or voice, is sometimes seen as an actual autonomous entity that sends a transmission to the recipient, who then channels the voice, message, or vision received. Others may perceive the muse, demon, genius, as the higher self, the personal or collective, unconscious, or as some other internal psychic function separate from the ego. The more one goes into psyche, the more inner and outer becomes blurred. So it is to be expected that some will experience inspiration as an external transmission, when they humbly receive, and others will experience it as a welling up from within their own unconscious or as a gift from their higher self. What everyone seems to explicitly or implicitly agree on is that this level of inspiration is not mere ego contrivance. It emerges from a source that has a degree of otherness or autonomy from ordinary waking consciousness. It comes out of left field sometimes when we least expect it. And the method of transmission may be a a voice, a a dream, a synchronicity that triggers a realization, a serendipitous discovery, a well-timed suggestion from an intuitive person. Inspiration has come to me at various times in all those forms, but the muse, for the rest of this essay I'll stick with that term, seems to be asking me right now to consider the example of the present piece of writing. Where did this come from? I've thought and talked about the muse for some time, but it's recent emergence as a subject of discourse seemed to begin five days ago when I was at a friend's house and I can't be sure exactly what its point of entry into the conversation was, but it definitely came from me. I believe we were talking about the reelection of W and someone may have said something about power being in the hands of the elite. I made the point. I do whenever I hear that statement and it's various permutations that it is only half the truth. I always point out that the inspired, what I call mutant has the power to shift culture on the alchemical level while political and economic forces may dominate the chemical or causal plane of reality. I use Jimi Hendrix as an example, his unique energetic signature expressed in his music had affected everyone in the room. All of us would have been a bit different. If he had never existed, his power arose from his connection to the muse. Another example I used was the daily show on comedy central. The best humor seemed to be running against the elite and humor is also a function of the muse. The conversation then veered to the sad reality that many artists are abandoned by their muse or they abandon the muse by going forward without inspiration and churning out inferior work. I mentioned Woody Allen as an example. I found that I was rather passionate in my discourse on the muse. There was a heat or energy about it, and the conversation lingered in my mind in the days afterward. Then yesterday, I got a one-sentence email from John Jenkins asking me, where are my writings on my website he could find a discussion of narcissism and self-magnification? I responded, but realized once I looked, in, once I looked into it, that I had written a lot less about narcissism as a standalone topic than I realized, given how much I think and talk about it. That provoked the thought, what else have I thought and talked about a lot, but not written about? The muse came up, and I made a mental note to write about that someday. That was last night. This morning, when I went to work on Casting Precious into the Cracks of Doom, and a major 20,000-word treatise that I'm very committed to, I discovered that I wasn't really there. I wasn't engaged with it. And a strong inner prompting told me, Write about the muse now. That subject had heat behind it. The casting precious boat was temporarily stilled in the harbor, but the muse topic had strong wind behind its sails, pushing it forward. The Ego Versus the Muse Being guided by the muse may be another way of saying being guided by intuition, and especially of recognizing where there is deep enthusiasm and where there isn't. The problem is that the ego is impatient and wants what it wants when it wants it. Also, many people, including some of the most talented, form an ego identity around their talent, real or imagined, and come to think of themselves as a poet, a writer, a composer, etc. Implicit in these self-definitions is that the associated creative activities, writing, composing, etc., are their birthright and natural functions. If they really do have gifts in these areas, and even more so if they get social acknowledgement for them, then the identification tends to become ever more absolute, and they become addicted to the recognition and admiration they get from others. So if a Woody Allen, for example, believes himself to be a great filmmaker, and other people enforce that belief with praise, and especially since he once was a great filmmaker... Naturally, he believes that because he continues to be Woody Allen, he must also continue to be a great filmmaker and should continue to make films. What gets forgotten is the muse. And obviously that's coming from a personal opinion that his later films, since uh, probably uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, haven't had very much merit, at least for me. What gets forgotten is the muse. The ambitious and inflated ego has identified with the glamorous role it has found and wants to go ahead even if there is no inspiration. This is a major reason why we get so much mediocre work in every area of creativity. People keep churning it out because of the needs of their ego identity, financial expedience, etc. The I Ching and Taoism put a great value on reticence the practice of holding back in word and deed until one is shown that it is time to go forward. Like the old saying, better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. It is better to be thought a has-been because you do nothing than to churn out inferior work and remove all doubt. It is in creative original art forms that this need to hold back is greatest. If one is an instrumental musician but not a composer a ballet dancer, but not a choreographer, a craftsperson. One can advance through regular daily practice and can call up a skill set far more reliably. Mathematical theorists, on the other hand, are often over the hill by age 30. Some creative artists produce mature masterpieces well into their 80s and 90s. Everything is case-specific. Every artist's relationship to the muse is different. The point is not to neglect or presume upon that relationship. Narcissistic inflation and identification can corrupt this relationship, but there are also great artists who continue to do great work despite their extreme egoism and narcissism. When you have nothing new to say, get off the stage. The archer who hits the mark does so because he holds the arrow back until just the right moment. Goethe said, a master first reveals himself in his ability to hold back. Are you engaging in creativity because you want to be somebody, because you want to be seen as the one wearing the coat of many colors, or because you have something to express from the depths of your being? A classic example of the ego identification problem is so-called writer's block. I've heard writers talk about this as though it were an illness, a psychiatric pathology, or a case of demonic possession. All it really means is that someone has such a strong ego identification with being a writer that they foolishly presume that they should be able to do creative writing all the time. Was writer stamped on their birth certificate? This is as silly as people believing that it is their right to be young, to be the young stud or beauty for an entire lifetime. Divine gifts may be given and they may be taken away without notice or warning and you can't sue to get them back. Like being a a child, an adult, a lover, a parent, a grandparent, whatever. These are temporary roles. Being a human being is a temporary role. As Shakespeare put it, all the world's a stage. All the men and women merely players. They each have their entrances and their exits. And that's from As You Like It. Act 2, Scene 7. Play your roles when you are called upon and get off the stage when the performance is over. Indulging in creativity without the muse is one hazard. Another hazard is failing to respond to the call of the muse. The muse is a demanding mistress, and failing her can result in devastating consequences uh, what What did Jesus say if I don't give birth to the if you don't give birth to the genius within you, it may destroy you. <clears throat> I remember when I was a full time English teacher with a zillion papers to grade, lessons to prepare, commitments to extracurricular clubs and activities, etc and a fantasy writing phase happened. Usually this area of creativity, the most desirable for me, is closed. In my own history, this has been my greatest area of resisting the muse. I have long felt and experienced that the greatest creative fulfillment for me, possibly the greatest life fulfillment and peak experiences, have been with fantasy writing, particularly a fantasy epic I have written parts of but never finished, entitled Parallel Journeys, and an experimental version of part of it is available on the website, zaporacle.com. For me, nothing compares to the muse drawing the curtain back and revealing a portal into another world. On particular occasions, the fantasy writer may be granted what I call entrance, the temporally fragile permission to step across the threshold into this parallel dimension and record what is seen there and sometimes to co-create what is there. It took me many, many years to fully accept that I don't control the openings and closings of that portal. Similarly, we can't control Eros, or the possibility-impossibility of a divine-human romance. You can't make that happen. You can't say, that's it, in one week I will meet my soulmate. The more you try to contrive that, or make that happen, usually the less likely it is to happen. Classically, it happens when least expected, or when you have given up on it happening. And Dorothy Canfield Fisher rightly compared novel writing to falling in love. For many, many years, I was so hooked on the magic of the fantasy writing portal that I sought, sought it the way uh, a ring wraith pursues the one ring. And when I was able to wield this ring of power, I became narcissistically inflated by it. And when that happened, the ring would fall from my grasp and into the cracks of doom. In the great fantasy cycle by Robert Jordan, The Wheel of Time, there are two sides of the source, the force of magical manifestation. There is a feminine side that women access, known as Saidar, and a masculine side that men access, called saidin. There is a taint on the male side of the force, such that males who claim channel it become egotistically inflated and addicted to it, and eventually go insane and use it in terribly destructive ways. There is a general human truth in this. When one possesses active creative power, the experience is thrilling, energizing, orgasmic. But one wants more and more of it, and there is a strong tendency to identify with it, to become narcissistically inflated by it. As a recovering narcissistic personality type, I know this syndrome very intimately. Many times I would have such a peak experience in fantasy writing that I would find myself disengaging with it To revel in narcissistic self glorification, only to find that as I congratulated myself, the muse was drawing close the curtains, and just as I had triumphantly grasped the gold ring, it was slipping out of my fingers and falling in slow motion into the cracks of doom. The muse led me into that tangent. Um, But I started out a few paragraphs ago to talk about the hazard of not answering the call of the muse and mentioned a time when I was an overly busy English teacher. The creative writing fantasy portal opened, but I found that I couldn't give it the space it required, and instead opted to correct all the hundreds of illiterate papers, etc., because that was my imperative moral responsibility. I experienced intense inner conflict as I was forced to sacrifice many days of creative writing to fulfill my teacher duties. Then one morning, I woke up in excruciating pain. It felt like I had somehow broken my arm while I was asleep. The muse had been twisting my arm. Had she broken it while I slept because I wasn't giving myself to the creative process? An MRI revealed that I had two herniated discs in my neck, C5 and C6, which were impinging on nerves that ran into my arm where I felt the pain, a syndrome with the wonderfully absurd name radiculopathy. This pain was so disabling that I was no longer able to teach, but I was able to write for a while. The pain in the early morning, which is my preferred writing zone coming out of dream time, was not so great. But as the weight of my head compressed the disc during the course of the day, the pain would dramatically intensify. And this was a symptom that arose with no particular injury or anything. It just woke up with us one day. Medical specialists were recommending that I undergo dangerous double fusion surgery. I was told that I might never be able to run or backpack again. At that point, I was a physical fitness enthusiast. Still I am often running 12 miles a day. Don't do that anymore. Marathons, mountain climbing, leading wilderness expeditions, <clears throat> a cross country coach who ran with the kids could run five miles in under five and a half minutes per mile. That was my early thirties. While not a true believer in allopathic diagnosis, I found myself taking this devastating prognosis of disability quite seriously and literally. I did not yet recognize that I secretly wanted to believe it. A young friend of mine, a former student, hearing of this prognosis told me, his voice resonating with an oracular power in my unconscious, but that's just what doctors say. A few days later, still debating the recommended surgery, I caught myself thinking, If this surgery produces disabling symptoms then i could go out on disability i wouldn't have to mark papers anymore and i would have all the time i needed to write noticing the implications of this thought which had been playing in the background for quite a while i was shocked into realization of the signal i had been sending my body for months the demands of the muse were such that i preferred disability to abandoning the creative path this was the first signpost along the road that led to the realization that I had to leave teaching. This was no easy realization. In many ways, I loved teaching and continue to miss the interaction with the kids. Also, I had a tenured teaching job in the highest-paying county for teachers in the U.S., was making about sixty grand a year in 1995 with total job security, health care, cradle-to-grave entitlements. The muse had put a gun to my head, or more literally, a surgeon's scalpel to C5 and C6, and said, follow me or else. It was driving an agonizing wedge between my head and my body. Still, I had so much invested in my teaching career that it took me many more shocks to loosen my grip on this pillar of illusory security. The new shocks came as I continued to teach despite recurrent neck episodes. To fully relate what happened would be a a major dissertation in itself, but very briefly, <clears throat> theme of magic, magicians, and magical pentagrams surrounded an encounter with my first rainbow gathering. The call to adventure happened when I was helping a former student, Scott, with a college paper. We were talking about the value of responding to the unexpected, which had some, something to do with the paper he was writing, maybe an, an analysis of a novel or something. And the phone rang. It was another former student, Dave, whom I hadn't heard from in months, also a friend of Scott's, coincidentally, calling to ask me if I wanted to go to a rainbow gathering in Ocala, Florida. Winter break was happening in a day or two for um, me and for Scott, attending, who was attending a different school. And given the obvious synchronicity of the call, we said we both said yes on the spot. The theme of magic, especially as represented by pentagrams, began with the phone call. I won't give every example, but one of the first pentagrams came with a family at the gathering who were homeschooling their kids and living largely in rainbow gatherings. These kids were so much more whole and alive than the kids I had encountered in public education. It was a shocking revelation of the toxicity of counter-enthusiastic patriarchal education. It was also, by implication, a message about the muse as these kids had never been taught to defer to external authority instead of their own creative enthusiasms. But these were not like wild, out-of-control hippie kids. They would actually do chores without even being asked and and so forth. Someone once said that children are born with 360 degrees of awareness, but the conditioning keeps reducing that sphere of awareness. By the time kids get out of middle, middle school... That sphere of awareness has typically become a skinny cone of identification. My boyfriend, girlfriend, haircut, car, popularity, etc. But the kids in this family, uh, who called themselves Earth Tribe, had very limited funds and lived mostly in the rural south, were 360 degree kids. My intuition registered this global difference immediately, and it was a profound shock. I assumed that the largely twisted, truncated, conditioned, resentful young people I had encountered in great numbers were representative of all kids at this phase of culture. But the earth-drive kids, who had never attended schools, were entirely different. I was amazed to see them do difficult chores on their own initiative when they saw that something needed to be done. They easily and comfortably related to adults without all the weird boundary tensions and resentments. ...that I just assumed were part of intergenerational life. Never having experienced schools, they had never been taught that learning is supposed to be painful and monotonous... ...and they were endlessly curious and engaged with everything around them and with their own self-initiated pursuits. I came to a realization about education that could be expressed in a single sentence. The real unconscious purpose of much education is to sufficiently oppress a young person's innate will to learn so that society can make use of them. One of these children, Timothy, drew a beautiful image for me using the primitive sketch program on my handheld computer. This was just as I was about to leave the gathering. The image involved a pentagram and other visual motifs that proved to be an amazingly prophetic visual representation of a new phase of my life that was just beginning. And sometimes I'll let the muse take me off at the text to add a thought or two. It was, it was almost as if the muse guided Timothy to create a kind of flag uh, very efficiently with uh, a few key glyphs in it that were to kind of represent this future life phase. And of course, included in that was a pentagram because that pentagram symbol just seemed to be a motif that kept uh, coming up. Okay. Okay. The the night we came back from the gathering, after a a marathon drive from Florida back to Long Island, New York, I had the most life-changing dream of my entire life. The muse is demanding that I relate this dream in full, while my ego is protesting that this is too much of an unrelated tangent. Thinking about this for a moment, trying to console my nervous ego and my readers, and any readers who may be puzzled by the need to relate this dream, I can think of a couple of things that may bridge the dream to the muse. One is that magic and the muse are related themes, and dream time and the muse are related, as the muse often inspires through dreams. Maybe the dream and synchronicities that follow will illustrate how the muse can dramatically redirect your life from where you expected it to go. Whatever the link, the muse wants me to include it, so here it goes. And, of course, now that I've already written this, I I, I know that it is extremely relevant. In the dream, it is nighttime, and I am at the Omega Institute in upstate New York. This setting is highly significant, so I'd better explain that the Omega Institute, which is in Rhinebeck, New York, is the East Coast equivalent of what Esalen is on the West Coast. Formerly a summer camp, it is surrounded by woods and has bungalows and meeting halls where seminars are he- held on all sorts of interesting subjects. I had been to Omega twice for courses but probably got the most out of some tapes I found there of past seminars taught by Terence McKenna. The name of the Omega Institute is highly significant. The founders were referring to the Omega Point, theorized by the French Jesuit priest, paleontologist, and evolutionary theorist Teilhard de Chardin in his visionary book, The Phenomenon of Man. Teilhard's Omega Point closely parallels what I have referred to in my writings as the evolutionary event horizon, um, which relates to the singularity, are pre-signaled to us through the many permutations of what I call the singularity archetype. And you can see many documents related to that on my website, and I'm working on a, uh, a book about that subject. Encountering the evolutionary theories of Tehard and Terence was a great confirmation for me, because their theories about the future of human evolution have such close parallels to theories I had arrived at independently, along a very different path. Theories which will be described a bit later in this essay. I am at the Omega Institute at night, and keeping with its summer camp roots, there is a scavenger hunt going on as evening entertainment. The scavenger hunt has been created by a group of magicians who in the dream I think of as a bunch of new age posers. I am annoyed because they have made me an item to find on the scavenger hunt. The treasure map, which has been cleverly made to look like an old parchment map, had an item of instruction, find a man named Zap, and I'm irritated to be made an object of pursuit because of my unusual last name. I assume it's because of my name. I go to my campsite, a tent I have set up right at the edge of the lake, and I'm outraged to find that someone has opened the back of the camera I left there exposing the film, I'm sure that it is this bunch of magicians who are responsible, and in an irate state, I go looking for them. When I find them, I discover uh, that they don't look like the new age posers I expected. They seem to be very mature, intelligent, older Jewish guys. Still irate, I demand to know who messed with my camera. They tell me that it was probably their leader, whom they identify as Gordon Wasson. Still irate, I fume off to look for this guy. I go through some kind of tunnel and come out in what appears to be an empty New York City subway station with typical fluorescent lighting, cement floors, and walls of white ceramic tile. Gordon Wasson is there, and he seems to be a somewhat androgynous young man who is doing some sort of magical ritual that may involve doing graffiti on the walls. There is an Indian-style teepee there and parchment skins reminds me of a well-known artist I used to know, the late Keith Haring, who began as a subway artist. As I approach, I sense that there is some sort of parapsychological radiance about him, but my attitude is still irate and defiant. I'm thinking that I'm no stranger to the parapsychological, so I'm not about to be intimidated by... But as soon as I get close to him, my attitude and perception shift entirely. At the first moment of eye contact, there is a deep mutual recognition and an energetic merging occurs that shifts us visually and otherwise out of perception of the subway station setting. There is a completely encompassing merging of essences, and I empathically sense something about the symbiosis I experience with this being. I sense that my psyche is providing needed stability and structure for him, that his essence is lunar and changeling, while mine is solar and more solid. The merging or communion completed itself and we came out of the state and were looking at each other sitting on the subway platform, sitting beside the teepee with the parchments parchments, uh, lying on the floor near us that appeared to have alchemical symbols scrawled on them. Gordon picked up one of these and handed it to me saying, this is a map of our consultation. Then the dream ended and I awoke. The recognition, though this may only have happened after waking, was particular and personal. The being that I encountered did not feel like merely a dream character, but a dream-time encounter with another autonomous entity. At some point, perhaps only after waking reflection, I came to feel that this being was my deceased cousin, David. Some waking life background is necessary here. My mother has only one sibling, a younger sister she is still very close to, named Jackie. Jackie. Their first daughters were born within a few months of each other, and their first and only sons were also born within a few months. David was born first, and I was born about six months later. In a couple of senses, I was named after him. David was, by far, my closest contemporary male relative, and as we grew up, I sensed him as a fellow mutant. Certainly, he was an extremely bright, funny, and intense kid. Sometime in adolescence, David began having visions and was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. To make a long, tragic story brief, around the time when we were both 30, David hung himself. Most of the dream is set at the Omega Institute, which is where I acquired Terence McKenna tapes, and on those tapes I encountered a theory of schizophrenia that may have a very direct bearing on David. The theme of magicians and shamanism is continued by this theory, which I will relate uh, momentarily. Shamanism is also connected to the oddly specific name given to the chief magician, Gordon Wasson. My first thought on awakening, as if the whole dream had begged this question, was, who is Gordon Wasson? The name was not ringing any bells at all, but later in the day I had an intuition that it was connected to Terence McKenna, and checking the index of the Archaic Revival, I found it right away. Gordon Wasson was the first Caucasian to rediscover the psychedelic properties of certain mushrooms and had a connection with shamanism, as does Keith Haring in a somewhat less direct way. Though another connection with with Keith Haring, and I'm speaking off the text now because this is an article in the Muse, so I should allow for some unexpected tangents. I did know Keith personally a little bit. We talked about Jung a bit. Um, he um, There's an excellent documentary about him. Uh, I forget what it's called, but I highly recommend it. And available in DVD. He um, was showing early in his career at the Fun Gallery right across the street from where I lived on 10th between 1st and A in the Lower East Side, or what was then being called the East Village, and I guess still is. And one connection with my cousin is that he's somebody who uh, died unexpectedly young uh, of AIDS. I guess he would have been similar in age, maybe 30 or early 30s. And um, he, But he was also kind of a very uh, magical figure, uh, very mercurial and extremely creative and original. Okay, well, I just looked that up and it looks like there's two of them. The universe of Keith Haring, I think that's the one that I saw. It was quite good and would be a great movie to see um, on the subject of the creative muse because you just see this level of truly inspiring uh, creativity in someone. A couple of other movies while I'm thinking about this that that I think are also very instructive about the creative muse. Crumb. This is about the, the famous cartoonist is it Robert Crumb who did Zap Comics that was really great and another very entertaining documentary about a creative artist is The Devil and Daniel Johnson so all three of those are recommended and the one that I guess I haven't seen is that's apparently not as well reviewed is Drawing the Line which is another documentary about Keith Haring Some of my young books that uh, I lent Keith back in the 80s uh, still have some designs of his on them. And, of course, I will treasure those. And it looks like he uh, uh, died at the age of 31. That would have been about the same time as my cousin. Didn't make that connection before. And uh, he passed on in 1990. Um, I had the dream in uh, 1995. Okay, back to the text of the essays. I was saying... The whole dream had begged the question, Who is Gordon Wasson? And uh, the name wasn't Ring Any Bells, but then I looked him up in uh, uh, Terence McKenna books and discovered uh, his connection to uh, psilocybin mushrooms and, his con- and a connection to shamanism as Keith Haring sort of had. Okay, so here's the theory of schizophrenia that I got from the McKenna tapes I acquired at the Omega Institute. Terence, and and also this is connected because remember that my cousin David uh, was a schizophrenic. Terence points out, as have many others, that the psychopathologies, including schizophrenia, which are found in Western societies, are apparently nowhere to be found in tribal cultures. In a tribal culture, an adolescent who is having visions would be taken to the shaman, who might recognize him as an apprentice and guide him through these visionary disruptions of ordinary consciousness. Although the Bible is full of people having visions and hearing voices, I was brought up hearing, what truncating lies, that the age of miracles is over, and that the era of prophets ended with the era of the Hebrew Bible. That was stuff I got from my Reformed Jewish uh, Sunday school training, I guess. These outrageous statements, and otherwise I, there was not much to object to, but, but I certainly objected to that instinctively. These outrageous statements exemplify culture and institutionalize religion as control systems, saying, in effect, yes, our core was formed by visions and voices, but no more are allowed. Thank you very much. If new voices, visions, and prophets are to be allowed, then religion will have to be in a state of continual change, and we can't have that. Though, to be fair, Reform Judaism, which, again, I don't find much to rebel in on, is open to reform and to change, and it has changed many things. Religions that don't change the fundamentalist kind are are far more objectionable, of course. To be fair, I was brought up in a liberal reformed Jewish culture, and reformed Judaism recognizes that a religion needs to always be reforming itself, at least that is the theory, and it does get practiced somewhat. Reform excises many of the anti-feminine patriarchal rituals and abuses. But this sort of reforming was to be done by thoughtful adults and committees and so forth. The space that was allowed for reforming did not, however, invite young people to have visions, hear voices, or report prophetic dreams. That kind of thing would have been associated with psychopathology, superstition, and charismatic religious cultism. Am I saying that my cousin David was a religious prophet? no unfortunately i don't have enough con- didn't have enough contact with him during this phase to know what he was, nor could I say that there was no genetically scripted destabilization of brain chemistry but I can say that schizophrenia is a broad catch all diagnostic category, and there may very well be people who are having visions and hearing voices that are part of a self generated shamanic initiation if Moses were around today and were reported to well-intentioned, Western-educated parents, David's father is a a doctor and his mother, Jackie, a biochemist, that a burning bush had spoken to him, he'd be rushed into psychiatric treatment, and there would surely be neuropharmacological intervention, as there was for David. And these neuropharmaceuticals, and the pathologizing of the experience in general, would tend to derange and depotentiate a visionary phase. The experiencer instead of being guided through the visions, would in turn become arrested within a chaotic phase, which ensures that the presentation remains pathological. Again, I first encountered this theory in tapes I got from the Omega Institute, but until this morning writing this now, back in 2005 when I was writing it, I never made the connection between the dream set at Omega, David, and this theory of schizophrenia coming from Omega. So there was kind of a form follows function sort of thing going on with writing this essay in that it was very guided by the muse and a lot of unexpected discoveries happened in the course of writing it. But let's tangent off the schizophrenia topic for a moment and change the frame back to the muse for a couple of paragraphs. The associations that I just described arose as I was writing. They were not intended. This is the magical aspect of the muse. Its otherness and usually unpredictable ebb and flow a metaphor for the muse in the dream is the violated camera. As a photographer since childhood, I tend to identify with cameras. The camera has an eye and a memory, so it is a kind of technological, technolo- technologized mechanical psyche of sorts, capturing certain key moments, just as our memory does. Neurological materialists... Those who believe that consciousness is an epiphenomenon or secondary effect of biochemical process in the brain have a tendency to make literal comparisons between brains and digital computers. They think of consciousness, if they admit such a thing at all, as something that happens in the brain, something that is isolated within an exoskeleton of a skull. Your awareness, if any, is inside this organic space helmet, and a primitive analog to this is the light-sensitive film or sensor inside the exoskeleton of the camera chassis. So what outrages my ego in the dream and makes it irate is that a magician has opened up the camera and exposed the film. The ego, which is the first to take credit for the muse, can also become irate when the psyche is penetrated by the muse, which it may resent sometimes, almost like a rape. How dare the magic principle manifesting as dream-vision-synchronicity violate the inner space that is supposed to be the sovereign realm of the ego. We should not assume that the muse is always welcomed, even by the creative person who claims to follow the muse. And of course, this this particularly the non-welcoming aspect happens um, quite often in my life. I mean, again, I'm off the text here. When it's not practically advantageous. It's coming at an inconvenient time because work obligations or obligations to relationships and so forth are um, happening at the same time and um, this is a a, it can seem like the answer is well always go with the muse and abandon whatever you're doing but often that's that's too one-sided in this difficult paradox because when i was a teacher for example i really did have to give moral responsibility to the students in my charge i couldn't abandon those responsibilities i was ultimately able to leave teaching. But while I was presently contracted, it would be morally repugnant uh, to um, not fulfill my responsibilities. But one could imagine some rare case where maybe one has made a discovery so important that it would be more important than that kind of responsibility. I didn't make that that choice. Uh, um, but <clears throat> one could imagine a situation where somebody has made a discovery that has such a, um, a purpose for the greater good that some other key responsibility might have be, have to be neglected because of that, and that's one of the reasons why creative people uh, are sometimes uh, not the best people to be in relationships with, because the demands of the muse can can compete with interpersonal relationships. And In fact, uh, I've often found this in my life that these are the the two. Most meaningful and fulfilling spheres the interpersonal the key interpersonal relationships and the creative and sometimes those spheres uh, inspire one another and are synergistic sometimes they're antagonistic, and following one is at the the cost of the other at least in the short time frame so where uh, the, the need for a compromise really can come in is. For example, recently I'm in a phase of working on this book on the singularity archetype. Now, if something, if, if the muse starts tugging at my sleeve and pulling me in another direction, it's really a case specific judgment call. Because in many cases, it, it's very well worthwhile that if I'm inspired to write a particular card for my oracle, it may be worth it to take a morning off from the book and, and to go with that. In other cases, uh, there are things that I could sort of get going that, that the muse has enthusiasm with, but would undermine the ability to complete a book project under a deadline. So there's no completely simple answer. And although most of the time the answer is to go with where the muse is calling you, there are other cases where some other obligation is, has moral priority. And so, even though it seems like i villainized the ego, to, to kind of paraphrase Freud, who famously said, where it is, their ego shall be. Uh, where the muse is, their ego shall be as well. Uh, and we're talking about not the egoistic ego, but the enlightened ego, the ego that is in communication with the self, and that has to um, play the ego's role, which is to negotiate between the inner world and the outer world. And and that's a difficult negotiation, and often a, a thankless one. But sometimes you have to choose the inner world, which would be the muse. Uh, sometimes you have to choose the demands of the outer world. So it's a completely case-specific negotiation from my point of view. Uh, let's say, hypothetically, you're a novelist, in your morning writing session, you've just had a breakthrough about how to handle a particular transition or something, but it's also like your kid's birthday party that's happening in five minutes. So you, uh, you know, you could abandon the birthday party and stay with the the writing thing and upset everybody. You could go with the birthday party and, and lose your train of thought about this transition, or you could, Probably the better choice. Uh, make a little compromise and just stick your head out and say, uh, "Hey, I need i I'll be five minutes late, um, exactly five minutes late, and, and and take the you know ten minutes or whatever to um, <clears throat> sketch out the transition and and make a little bit of a compromise there between the, the demands of these two different spheres." Okay, getting back to the text of the essay. Industrial-era and information-era humans alike tend to think of the psyche with technological analogs, as cameras, and especially as computers. From the Industrial Age, Freud was forever comparing repressed libido to built-up steam pressure, intended to describe the psyche as if it were a mismanaged locomotive. Neurological materialists in the information age view consciousness, if they admit its existence at all, as arising rising from the wet wear of our frontal lobes. Brains are compared to digital computers, and typically it is a literal, not a metaphorical, comparison. Sometimes brains are disparagingly compared to computers, which are said to be faster, more reliable, and improving much more quickly. Sure, brains are complex, but that makes them unreliable and prone to short out. A schizophrenic is a shorting out brain, a computer riddled with viruses, from their point of view, and it should be unplugged from the network lest it contaminate other computers, a brain isolated from other brains. Attempts to reformat the wet hard drive through with psychosurgery, electroshock, chemistry, and so forth often yield very disappointing results compared to computer repairs. Okay, back to the divergent view of schizophrenia. Some will protest that antipsychotic meds actually work, and they may very well be right. I'm off for the case-specific point of view. There may be a person whose life is so diminished by symptoms that some particular medication that can reduce those symptoms or eliminate them turns out to be life-saving. In many cases, meds may truncate the person into a feeble and diminished normality. Our culture is better able to work with diminished normality than an acting-out chaotic visionary state. If new visions, voices, and prophecies were to be recognized, imagine how disruptive this would be to the status quo, the conservative baseline of collective consciousness. Instead of being recognized as a legitimate vector for cultural transformation, as they were in biblical times, visions are universally pathologized, and the experiences are seen as dysfunctional. And although we are recently out of our horrifying psychosurgery phase, Neuropharmaceuticals may sometimes amount to chemical lobotomies. And of course, as we all know, our society is so extremely healthy that it doesn't need any transformative messages from individuals. Society is, by self definition, the gold standard of health, normality, and productive functionality. I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Sickness is an attribute of the individual. We would search the DSM IV in vain to find a category like national psychosis. And if a nation does go crazy, like Nazi Germany did, well, society has an amazingly productive remedy for that called world war, which can be a great boost for the economy and military-industrial complex. Long before my cousin David reported visions and voices, I experienced them too, but in modalities that were less visibly disruptive to my, in quotes, normal functioning. When I was about three years old, I had a dream time experience of ancestors communicating to me. I've never been able to recall what they said except for one statement indelibly etched into memory. You have the gift of an understanding heart. I woke up fully aware that something of the greatest importance had happened and went into my parents' bedroom and woke them up to tell them about it. I also recited two or three Hebrew prayers that I had apparently not been exposed to in the waking life. My parents, like sensible adults, went back to sleep. I continued to refer to the experience often for the next two or three years, and then for a long period of time, a veil of forgetful neglect passed over the experience. It wasn't a repressed memory, just a neglected one. It wasn't until my 30s that I recollected how life-changing this early experience was. The understanding heart phrase used by the ancestors still challenges me because I know that I am more likely to recognize understanding as coming from my head rather than my heart and that seems to indicate a need for considerable metamorphosis before i can fully realize the essence suggested by the phase by the phrase and really uh if understanding from the heart is intuition then i gradually have moved from the thinking function toward being guided more by intuition with the thinking function following close behind that fortunately Little kids can report the occasional weird dream and not arouse the dragon of psychiatric scrutiny. Other experiences happen later when I knew the implicit rules about what to keep to myself. Communication with a muse is not necessarily met with delighted recognition by society. If you can chuck a football well, get a good score on the SATs, manage a stock portfolio, etc., then you will be celebrated and rewarded. Weirder accomplishments... Accomplishments may get you hospitalized. This childhood experience is another example of the camera being opened and another energy striking the film. The camera incident in the dream preceded the encounter with Gordon Wasson, which became a camera opening event where I had a complete melding on many levels with another entity. The irate energy I presented in the dream could be seen as a kind of anticipatory immunological response to the approach of a camera-opening event. The psyche, like other organisms, is ready to defend its homeostasis. The dream came after the many unexpected revelations of the rainbow gathering where people and events in the waking life also opened the camera. By the way, I'm going to step off the text for a minute just to tell you about another little synchronicity that happened related to the, the Gordon Wasson uh, aspect of the dream. I mentioned that in the dream, there were these older Jewish magicians. I had anticipated that these would, people would be new age posers, but they actually seemed like these older, sober, thoughtful uh, Jewish men when I ran into them. And a few months ago, I was talking to somebody that a uh, Richard Grossinger, the publisher of North Atlantic books, Introduced me to his name is Harvey Bialy. He's a molecular biologist with a a varied, almost operatic life. He was the biotechnology advisor uh, for to Fidel Castro for many years until he had a falling out with him. He was the uh, biotechnology editor of the journal Nature and is also a, a very talented artist and when i was talking on the phone suddenly it gelled in my mind that that he sounded and so did richard grossinger that they seemed or sounded like maybe even looked like the older jewish magicians that i had experienced in the dream some 15 years before and then when i meant i didn't i didn't i thought it would sound too flaky to to mention it or like an attempt to flatter or something Um, But when I was visiting Harvey Bialy for the first time at his house, um, this really began to gel in my mind that he really looked and sounded like one of those magicians. I went into his, his bathroom and there was one book in there and it was a book by Gordon Wasson. And when I opened the book, I saw it had a personal inscription to him from Gordon Wasson. It turns out that he was friends with Gordon Wasson, somebody who died several decades ago. And let's see, born 1898, died in 1986. Okay, where I left off, I was talking about the irate reaction I had to having the camera opened. And so that's an intrapsychic kind of immunological response to the invasion of outside vision. Sometimes what visionaries may experience uh, the same thing interpersonally or in their relationship to the collective, because if you create a vision or an idea or something that's ahead of its time, then um, the collective or particular individuals can have an immunological response to you. And it's like Aleister Crowley said, if I tell a man something he's not ready to hear, it's the same as if I told him a lie. Okay, getting back to the text and going back a line or two. The irate energy I presented in the dream could be seen as a kind of anticipatory immunological response to the approach of a camera opening event. The psyche, like other organisms, is ready to defend its homeostasis. The dream came after the many unexpected revelations of the rainbow gathering where people and events in the waking life also opened the camera. Voices and visions are functions of the muse, but society isn't interested in the muse or encouraging visionaries. On the contrary... Society is grimly, sometimes violently, determined to create reliable workers who are eager consumers and predictable voters. And maybe that overstates the case. After all, society does acknowledge some things from the muse. But for the most part, and in education, the emphasis is on conformity to an existing structure. Well-intentioned adults equate viability with employability. They think they are doing young people a service when they painfully condition them to play by the rules and focus their attention on a realistic career. And again, I can sympathize with that because from the point of view of a worried adult, you want this person to be economically viable and so forth. But we have to see the one-sidedness of this emphasis. It's all about adopting the individual to the larger society and not encouraging Uh, matrix-shifting intentionality from the individual. And this paradox, and I talk about this in Dynamic Paradoxicalism, is captured by a famous George Bernard Shaw quote, The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So it's, again, I'm not trying to Uh, talk-down economic functionality, that would be ridiculous, but we can't just interpret that as the highest good. Uh, So, for example, people have pointed out that uh, if you have a car accident, the um, gross national product increases because ambulance services are are called, um, maybe a funeral is arranged if things don't work out well, or many medical products and services are purchased. And so all of that would seem to be good for the economy, but it's not necessarily good for the greater good. And somebody could be having this be considered a huge success and they're productive and efficient and they get to work on time, but actually they're producing a a poison widget or something like that. And so um, we, a society, an innovative society needs some people who are going to break the mold. uh, But many other people are best served by um, a realistic adaptation to life, because that is more the path that 's going to uh, work for them uh, we we don 't unless we are inspired by the creative muse, it would just be stirring up a lot of unnecessary trouble to be seeking to uh, shift society toward our needs in a drastic way quite often, okay, and bringing things back toward the text again uh, the whole dream with the magicians at the Omega Institute, which I had uh, once again occurred in my first night back from uh, the gathering that I was in, where I had answered the call to adventure. Uh, remember there was a phone call that said, when when I was working on a theme on a paper that was about answering the call to adventure and doing the spontaneous. And all of this um, it seemed to involve pentagrams and the themes of magic, and being pursued by magicians um, in the in the dream who had singled me out um, because I had assumed um, because my name is Zap, and the denouement of the dream involved my seeking out the lead magician who turned out to be my cousin David, so I believed uh, afterwards, um, who in the waking life is deceased, but in the dream time seemed to be much more than a dream character. The dream was shocking and woke me up this would have been in february of 1995 there was no possibility of going back to sleep so i left for school early i wanted time to readjust to ordinary reality before bells started ringing and the whole hectic regimentation of public high school education resumed it was a wintry darkly overcast february day quite a contrast from the tropical forest where the rainbow gathering occurred as soon as I walked into the building, my eyes still adjusting to the eternal industrial high noon of fluorescent lighting, an 11th grade student of mine, Andrew, came up to me and he had a st- string between, uh, he seemed to be the only student in the building, and uh, he had string in between the fingers of both hands that was formed into a loose cat's cradle. And he came up to me very excited to see me and he said, Mr. Zapp, I want to show you something, he said. In a flash, he manipulated the string and formed a pentagram. I was too stunned to speak. And before I could force out anything, um, Andrew said, uh, the string pentagram still suspended magically between his fingers. I want you to meet someone, Mr. Zap, a magician who just taught me how to do this pentagram. I think you have a lot in common with him. I followed Andrew in a daze. I couldn't have been more shocked by the surreal impingement of dream time and waking time than if I had been following a white rabbit with a pocket watch. Andrew quickly led me into the faculty lounge where a strange-looking man I had never seen before was sitting. This man, who was almost exactly my age, was here for his first day as a substitute English teacher. And, of course, I was an English teacher. He was a magician by trade had spent the last 10 years living in rainbow gatherings, and now wanted to become a full-time English teacher. The muse was not being subtle. Um, she might as well have driven a silver spike into my head. And I, I realized just writing, hearing myself read that, it just sounds, that a whole occurrence sounds so over the top. But I mean, this is actually what happened. I remember he had this business card that said, I cure virgins, I slay dragons. I mean, he was very literally... Um, at least posing as a magician on multiple levels. He was a magician, had spent the last ten years living in rainbow gatherings, and now wanted to become a full-time English teacher. The muse was not being subtle. She might as well have driven a silver spike into my head. There was no mistaking these overdetermined messages. We were to trade places. A substitute had been arranged. Someone else could fill my place as English teacher, but only I could do my creative work. And the muse... Who had originally led me to teaching was pulling me off the stage by my hair. Of course, I wrote that before I started shaving my head. And there's a, a, a oracle card, a Zap oracle card, that says, "Do the work only you can do." It's inspired by this kind of idea that, as although nothing could be more morally valuable than. Being a teacher, even if you're in a somewhat toxic system, you can still make quite a, a huge difference in your individual interactions with, with kids. And in many ways, teaching was a larger round hole for uh, the, my square peg, um, more so than the, the corporate world that I had been involved in briefly in the world of gemology um, before teaching was. But it was, after a certain point of growth, it was no longer. It was too confining uh, a container because I needed to put the emphasis on doing the work only I can do. I'm not the only person that could do teaching high school English. Um, That could easily be substituted. Finally, despite intense resistance from parents and inner voices of financial anxiety, I left teaching in June of 1995. 95% 95% of my best writing, photography, and artwork have happened in the nine years since then. Of course, now it's more than nine years. It's like 16 years now. Interestingly, 80% of my best teaching in informal situations has occurred since then, too. During my last month of teaching, I had another acute neck episode Finishing out the school year, marking all the final papers and tests, and packing up my old life in-house and readying the 18-foot RV I would live in for most of the next 12 years brought me to the edge of nervous and physical exhaustion. A day or two after getting on the road, the neck episode was over and without any physical therapy. I have not had another acute episode as of this writing, which is now 16 years later. On June 17th of 1995, I went on the road, taking a year's leave of absence from teaching. The decision wasn't irreversible at that point. I still had about 10 months to decide if I was coming back. Now, this was no easy decision, uh, despite all these messages from the muse. Because I had a, uh, um, a tenured teaching job um, in the highest-paying county for teachers in the United States, Nassau County. I don't know if that's still the case or not. Uh, where I made close to 60k a year, quite a lot for a relatively young school teacher in 1995, and was provided with health insurance, an excellent pension plan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. My parents and every voice of middle-class common sense and practicality were urging me to return to the economic security of a profession I once loved. Ten months into being on the road, the school district called, pressing me for a decision. I was traveling with some young friends with whom I had done volunteer work at a Navajo reservation near Big Mountain, Arizona. The little bit of money I had from cashing out my retirement fund had long since been exhausted, and I had been living close to the edge. We were camped out in a mesa near Sedona, Arizona, and the morning had arrived in which the decision had to be made. With my friend Geordie as a witness, I did an Ching reading that seemed to strongly support leaving the teaching job. As I was finishing the reading, another member of the group I was traveling with, Seth, who knew nothing about the decision I was facing, came over to show me a Jung quote he had just encountered in a book on mountain climbing, and he, I, he, he knew that I was connected with Jungian studies, I guess. The quote turned out to be stunningly relevant. This was the second time in my life when it felt like Jung had stepped forward as a spiritual grandfather to give me his blessing. And I think later in this paper, we'll get into the first time that happened. Here is what Seth read to me. The fact that many a man going his own way ends in ruin means nothing. He must obey his own law as if it were a Damien whispering to him of new and wonderful paths. There are not a few who are called awake by the summons of the voice, whereupon they are at once set apart from the others, feeling themselves confronted with a problem about which the others know nothing. In most cases, it is impossible to explain to the others what has happened. Any understanding is walled off by impenetrable prejudices. You are no different from anybody else they will chorus. There is no such thing, or if there is such a thing, it is immediately branded as morbid. He is at once set apart, isolated, as he has resolved to obey the law that commands him from within. His own law, everybody will say, but he knows better. It is the law. The only meaningful life is the life that strives for individual realization, absolute and unconditional, of its own particular plan. To the extent that a man is untrue to the law of his being, he has failed to realize his life's meaning. The undiscovered being within us is a living part of the psyche. Classical Chinese philosophy names the interior way Tao and likened it to a flow of water that moves irresistibly towards its goal. To rest in Tao means fulfillment, wholeness, one's destination reached, one's mission done, the beginning, end, and perfect realization, the meaning of existence unique in all things. Well, just rereading this now, you can see the, the, the shock that I felt. I mean, this was as um, precisely and intentionally seemingly designed as Andrew with the pentagram of string in his fingers introducing me to the magician. It was so directly addressed uh, the situation and the choice that I had to make and was very nervous about making and with tremendous uh, family pressure. Um, it it was really like Jung as a living entity were, were stepping forward to be my benefactor and to give me his personal blessing somehow. Enhancing your relationship to the Muse. Although we don't ultimately control our relationship to the Muse any more than we control our relationship with Eros, there are ways to promote and encourage that relationship. Pay attention to the dream time, the dreams we have while asleep, and also pay attention to the waking dreams, often derisively called daydreams. Passive daydreaming is nowhere near as valuable as active imagination, but hidden in the dross of even passive imagination are sometimes diamonds. Above all, I recommend following what I call the path of the numinous. Numinous is a word that Jung used frequently, though he didn't coin it. Numen means spirit, so that which is numinous is that which is imbued with spirit. Something is numinous when it lights up in your perception with an uncanny significance. When you find a numinous object of perception on your path, then follow that up, follow it down the rabbit hole. It may be Ariadne's silver thread leading you into the labyrinth. The case where the numinous object is most deceptive, however, is when it is a physically beautiful person, a hottie, as I sometimes... Referred to it in essays like Stop the Hottie. Even this Newman would lead you to the center of a labyrinth if you had the courage to follow it past literal identification and possession towards some particular person, in other words, um, toward the source of the urge. See Stop the Hottie and Casting Precious into the Cracks of Doom uh, to document some available on the website. Um, have the courage to follow the muse when it calls to you and the humility to hold back from creative expression when it does not call. If you let your ego identify with a particular rabbit hole in life, you may not be able to recognize it's calm. Following the muse. A realization that I resisted for years is that following the muse and commercial success are two separate or often separate avenues of possibility. Sometimes those paths are unparalleled, and quite often they don't. Mediocre talents may gain meteoric success and great talents may go completely unacknowledged. Van Gogh is a good example. He suffered through poverty, illness, madness, and self mutilation while remaining committed to the muse, and when he died the only one who had paid for any of his paintings was his brother. His paintings were left neglected in attics, but now long after his death, They may bring $70 million apiece at auctions. Most artists struggle against obscurity. One who seemed to understand its necessity, one of the greatest visionaries of all time, was William Blake. Blake didn't even try to bring out his visionary work because he knew the time he lived in wasn't ready for it. Blake said, Fool, they call me. I laugh at the goddess Fortune, for I know that she is the devil's servant ready to kiss anyone's ass. I labor upwards into futurity. That was a Blake quote from about 200 years ago. Blake knew which metaphorical goddess he was committed to, the muse, and he ignored the goddess fortune. Our society calls someone who follows the goddess fortune to a large bank account a success, often without regard to how they got there or the creative value, if any, of whatever they produced. While I resisted and pined for the fantasy writing, the muse was pulling me, was guiding me into all sorts of other interesting places. Photography, collage, and decoupage, nonfiction writing, creating my own oracle, etc. It's taken me a long while to recognize the value of these other avenues and let go of the inner critic that disparaged these other creative avenues as inferior to fantasy writing. Now, I recognize how fortunate I have been that for most of my life, the muse has been pulling me intensely toward so many different numinous paths. Often I resisted, wanting her always to lead me toward fantasy writing. One morning in November of 1995, after I left teaching, I was trying to gain entrance into the dimension of parallel journeys, but couldn't because a persistent voice or thought form kept insisting that I create an image, a collage, Tenaciously, I tried to resist this inner prompting that I perceived as an annoying distraction that was keeping me from writing, which is what I thought I should be doing. Never should on yourself when you're being led by the creative muse. Finally, I had to acknowledge that I couldn't write, that I had to follow this inner prompting or it would keep tormenting me. Despite the strong disapproval of ego judgments... I found myself getting up from my desk and going downtown and spending almost all the money I had, this was after I left teaching, so I was really broke, on craft materials. Critical inner voices were screaming with disapproval. What a foolish distraction from your writing. What a waste of scarce money. Collage? That's from the arts and crafts world of kindergarten and finger painting. You're supposed to be a writer. Sheepishly or courageously, Depending on how you look at it, uh, feeling both enthusiasm and self-loathing, I felt forced to go forward until hours later I was back in my room with all these expensive art materials. I started cutting up treasured, one-of-a-kind photos, images, and books. After I pasted the first few pieces of paper, I was practically in tears with frustration and disappointment. Inner voices screamed disapproval. What the fuck are you doing? This looks Lame, ridiculous. You've never done this before. It's never going to work. You've just wasted so much money and time that you should have been using toward writing. What a waste. What a complete fiasco, etc. But now that I had already bought all these expensive supplies and cut into so many valuable images, I felt I had to continue. And then magic started to happen. I found myself in that state Mihai High calls flow. And for the next 72 hours or so, I did nothing besides sleep, eat, and work on that collage, which came to be called, like my fantasy work, Parallel Journeys, and remains my best work of visual art to this date. And you can see a see a black and white picture of that collage on the online essay, The Path of the Numinous. For a few years that followed, collage and decoupage became, for long stretches, my major form of creative expression. I stopped for quite a while when a number of my best pieces were stolen. This trauma seemed to discourage me, and only after a long time did I pick up this art form again, though this return was short-lived. And I had a similar experience with photography, where uh, an entire carousel, there were the Kodak carousel slide projectors at the time, and a large carousel of my best slides was inexplicably stolen and that stopped me from photography for quite a while i was residing in canada in british columbia and had the time and space to do a gigantic collage and almost a full sheet of plywood after i finished that i put collaging aside and haven't done anything with this art form since then i am sharing these personal experiences because they have general implications about the creative process one of the themes is that they are about allowing yourself to be pulled or led rather than the ego ambitiously trying to push, push its way in. A humbling aspect of following the lead of the muse is that you may be led some ways and then abandoned before arriving at what the ego considers success or even completion. Consider the following personal example. On May 31st of 1996, the exact date is easy to establish because it happened to be the day that Timothy O'Leary died. I woke up feeling somewhat downcast about certain neurotic aspects of my personality that I felt I had never made progress with. Feeling no particular inspiration, I decided to sit down with a notebook and a pen in front of me and take another try at understanding anyway. Suddenly, what felt like a transmission um, occurred. And um, in a short period of time, this seems to be a pattern for me. The the time interval always seems to be less than 40 minutes. An intense series of life-changing insights cascaded through my mind. Was this a last message from Timothy as he left his body? And I wasn't particularly a fan of Timothy Leary. The insights I had about the nature of body and consciousness and a largely unrecognized will in the human species did not merely change my thinking and philosophy. They profoundly shifted some of the most overdetermined, stubbornly neurotic aspects of my personality, and I've been a different person ever since that morning. Just when I finished furiously scribble- scribbling down this compressed burst of insight, my pager went off. This was the pager error, I guess. This could be the most mundane of events, but intuitively I was absolutely convinced that the pager was registering a parallel transmission and that whoever was calling had something of immediate bearing to the burst of insight. I left my RV to look for a phone. There was a voice message from my friend, Jordy, who I referred to earlier, saying he needed to talk to me. But the number left on the pager turned out to be that of a hospital in Louisiana. Another page came through from him, again with the number of the hospital in Louisiana, and I worried that there might be a medical emergency involving him or his partner, Sarah. I'll cut through the details here. Suffice to say, there were a series of telecommunication anomalies of different sorts, five inexplicable malfunctions of different systems in a way that just seemed completely improbable and but that made it impossible for us to communicate. It took more than twenty-four hours with both of us trying before we could have a live phone contact. Geordie had paged me immediately upon awakening from a dream of shocking intensity and import, in which I appeared as a dream character. The content of the dream had jaw-dropping parallelism to the burst of insights, which felt like a transmission I had, re- I had received um, at the exact same time that Jordi was having his dream. At the time, I was represented by a literary agent at Power Review, perhaps the best agency to represent a metaphysical sort of book. I immediately began work on a book proposal that expanded the compressed burst of insights into a compressed version of a proposed book this book proposal was entitled the glorified body metamorphosis of the body and the crisis phase of human evolution and by the way to in that essay uh, it's also the same name as an essay on my website you would hear the dream that Geordie was calling me about I don't know that I tell it here in this essay for the next couple of months I was totally focused on writing this book proposal I did some associated research, edited it and polished it until I was completely satisfied with it and sent it off to my agent at Paravium. He was entirely satisfied with it as well and ready to go forward. Quite suddenly, however, either while I was on the phone with him or right after I hung up, I felt the inner tectonic plate shift inside of me and with as much definiteness as one might feel in encountering the wall of a giant canyon, I realized... I didn't want to spend two years writing this book. I've already said what I had to say on the subject. An ego consciousness looking at this might scream, self-sabotage, what are you doing? You've got an agent ready to sell your book. Are you crazy? Looking up the book proposal on the website, I noticed a synchronicity that I had previously thought a simple error. Okay, so at the time when I wrote this this is before I really had my own website. I had a little site that my friend John Jenkins had created that sort of piggybacked on his site. And he had posted um, this document, The Glorified Body, on the site for me. But he falsely and unaccountably labeled it, even though he'd read the proposal or whatever, um, he labeled it on the menu, entire book, colon, The Glorified Body, even though he knew perfectly well that I had not written an entire book on the subject. Right on the first page, it is labeled book proposal, and John had read this back in 1996 and knew at least then that this was a book proposal, not a book. I've reminded him to change that a couple of times, but somehow the entire book prefix remains, at least in 2005 it remained. And now I am able to understand why it is an entire book. It said in compact form everything I had to say on the subject at the time when I wrote it. And that's why the muse was done with it. Typically, we get nonfiction ideas with one basic idea in them, and usually that idea is a retread. And then this message is endlessly padded and repeated till the book is what consumers recognize as a normal book length. But I have zero enthusiasm for reading or creating padded writing. In the 19th century, many thinkers issued pamphlets where they discoursed on some new insight in an extended essay format. Consider the concise brilliance, for example, of Emerson's essay, you can read this free online, Self-Reliance, originally published as a pamphlet. There is more original thinking in self-reliance than shelf loads of Dr. Phil books and chicken soup for the lazy consumer soul or whatever, and all the many other thick but empty volumes you find everywhere. Marketing and Muse often go their very separate ways. Drawing some lessons from the episode I just described, you can see that the muse gifted me with an intense burst of insights and with the obsessive enthusiasm to get them written up in concise form. My ego, attempting to mediate successfully with the outer world, had me working with a literary agent and had me put the writing into book proposal form. And all of those were very logical things for my reasonable things for my ego uh, to decide to do. Once the message had been received and turned into writing, however, the muse dropped the project by the side of the curb, and so did I. The lesson is that the muse creates its own openings and closings and doesn't bow to ego or marketing expectations. And there was also, it was because there was new content for me to move on to. It wasn't just that it wasn't worth the effort or something to turn this into a book. Ego misfortune may be muse fortune, The muse is also able to make great use out of events that may devastate and be judged as entirely bad by the ego. When Anne Rice's beloved daughter and first child died of leukemia, she went into a severe downward spiral of alcoholism and depression. At the bottom of this crash, the muse inspired her to write Interview with the Vampire. At the time, she was known only as the alcoholic housewife partner of her husband, the poet Stan uh, Rice, Um, who is at least somewhat well-known, and she was considered just sort of like a satellite, you know, around his star. She submitted this novel to close to 60 publishers before she found one who was willing to publish it. Anne Rice would never have chosen this path to creativity, but it was chosen for her. On July 6th of 2003, I was returning with two friends to my home in British Columbia from a great experience at the National Rainbow Gathering. Um, At the advice of a Canadian official, I had previously obtained a B.C. driver's license, which I had with me. When the the border uh, guards, officers, whatever, found I had a B.C. license with me, they immediately called immigration, which denied me access to the country because they were cracking down on American visitors who were informally becoming long-term residents. For my ego, this was a great shock, as, be, as great a shock as being struck by lightning. My most significant relationships were on the other side of the border. My two friends got through. My most important possessions artwork, RV, etc. my literal home were all on the other side of that border. An entire life I had going on there crashed closed in one decisive moment. I had about five minutes to hurriedly grab some survival gear from the packed car, missing several crucial items in the rush, and throw them into a backpack. Following a hasty farewell to my friends, I found myself walking down a deserted road at night. My ego consciousness felt like it had been flattened by a sledgehammer. People often disparage the ego, and that's not what I'm doing here, even as I point out that the ego must follow the muse and not vice versa. It is the appropriate function of the ego, and often it is its thankless and overwhelmingly difficult job to try to mediate between the inner you and the outer world. It plans and works to take care of your survival needs. It worries about crucial stuff the muse isn't concerned with, like where's the next meal coming from? What roof do I have over my head? How do I pay for the tools and space I need for my art? How can I get my work recognized and producing revenue, etc.? For more on the foolishness of ego-bashing and its appropriate role in the hierarchy of psychic functions, see uh, um, the mini um, version of A Guide to the Perplexed Interdimensional Traveler. It's, it's on the... Um, Website, of course, and it's in a section called the Hierarchy of Psychic Functions. For the next 24 hours, my devastated ego worked the problem, tried to find a way back into Canada, and hit nothing but walls. My return would not happen anytime soon. At the same time, I worked on the immediate hierarchy of needs and found a free campsite, set up, set up my tent, got food and water. Survivor Mode focused obsessively on investigating return to Canada and on the few things I needed to do to secure a campsite, but the items on those anxiety tinged to do lists soon ran out. Whatever possibilities there were had to be waited on. And I found that my life now consisted of a tent, a picnic table, a small artificial lake. The campsite was a municipal service of the hydroelectric company, which maintained it um, where I I could bathe there. um, And they also had a public bathroom and fellow campers who were mostly rednecks and locals. Hitchhiking or walking to the nearest town, and I believe that was Iowa Washington, um, to check email and get supplies was the major activity of each of the 20 or so days I stayed there. My ego's view of the situation was calamitous. It saw me as a homeless refugee, abandoned, with no immediate prospects. The muse, however, had an altogether different angle on the subject. It saw an oasis unprecedented in my entire life. The weather was great. I had food, water, a place to sleep, a notebook and pens, few social distractions, no cell phone, and above all, the muse had what it always wants from me, but could almost never get, relatively vast, uninterrupted blocks of time. My ego pined for the luxuries, good food, gadgets, and relationships in Canada that it thought were crucial needs. Low on cash, I sprouted my own seeds in plastic buckets with nylon screening material rubber-banded to the top. I copied this technique from the sprout kitchen at the Rainbow Gathering. With a live food diet, I had no cooking equipment after all, a few miles of hiking every day, fresh air and swims in the lake, my health was improving significantly. And I had the supreme luxury of uninterrupted time. No phones rang, no friends came over. Some amiable RV people from Canada gave me a, a cup of coffee, My second or third morning there, and I began to write and write and write. The early version of the Guide to the Perplexed Interdimensional Traveler was written then. A key serendipitous gift um, occurred at that. Lost my place here. Key serendipitous gift helped greatly to inspire the intensely productive writing phase that followed. The first full day of my exile, I went to the library to get on the internet. While my ego focused on the emergency, my muse was thrilled to find that a portal had opened for me in cyberspace. Completely on his own initiative, my friend John Major Jenkins had taken a couple of writings I sent out as emails, a photo of me with a tiger that he had downloaded from one of my Snapfish online albums, and had created a simple web page for me, piggybacked on his website, alignment2012.com. My muse was absolutely thrilled by this. With no intention or effort on my part, my writings were now available on the World Wide Web. So this was the beginning of my first participation in a website in 2003, eight years ago now. John's books are published in several languages, so people from all over the world visit his site. While my physical life was in pieces, and I was living in the perfect obscurity of a tent in a free campground, a new type of publication had opened up. Now, if I wrote something, it could be posted on this website and available to anyone with internet access, and I could do that the next day. I could go to the library after writing on the picnic table, and, and John could put it up on the site. So I was more obscure, but more public than I had been before. A major lesson of this personal experience is that a crisis for the ego can be a golden opportunity for the muse. If you follow the muse, you are usually provided with what you need, though this may be fantastically different than what the ego wants. While my ego continued to experience lots of anxiety and emotional anguish, my muse went to town and a huge writing phase began. During a full moon at the campground, I was the subject of a bizarre attack, and I wrote about this in Mind Parasites, Energy Parasites, and Vampires. It was almost like being in a Shirley Jackson play. Like being turned away at the border, this was scary and shocking to my ego, but left my body intact and excited the muse who inspired me to finally write up my thoughts, experiences, and insights on the whole mind parasite subject. And another thing that happened at the time also kind of led to inspiring that writing. Um, When I went into Ion, Washington one day, I discovered they had this in town, they had like a, um, an old locomotive freight car that had been filled up with a huge number of free books that had appeared somehow and that were free for anybody to take. And one of them was called something like Eyewitness of History. And it had these first hand accounts. And that was one of a, a, a few books that I gathered up to bring back to my campsite where I didn't even have a single book. And reading Eyewitness to History and seeing how over-the-top dark were some of these accounts peaking with um, people describing what it was like in the gulags of uh, Stalin and, and how um, the KGB treated innocent Soviet citizens that they even knew to be innocent and so forth. And, and that kind of also inspired um, this phase of investigating the subject of the mine parasites and writing about it. Okay, um, it's now a year and a half later in 2005 it was, though it feels like several lifetimes and hundreds of pages of writing have been written for the Zap Oracle website. Now, my um, ego is disappointed that it gets no money for this creativity or virtually no money. Uh, in fact, it costs far more money than it brings in. None of the accoutrements it long craved in its fantasy of what entails a successful writer lifestyle But my work is out there in cyberspace. I have a place to labor upwards into futurity. If you Google mind parasites, for example, my essay often comes up in the top three. And some mind parasite experiencers have found me through this website and shared fascinating episodes and theories. I get the occasional email from people in other countries because of the freedom of the web, I am able to retain the copyright. So no publisher can demand changes or drop my work from print. Like I'm changing this essay as I'm reading it out loud and I'm discovering flaws in it. And, um, of course, since 2005, when this was written, you know, now the Oracle's online and there are many other ways that uh, people are able to, um, experience my writings and so forth. And that's, um, a great fulfillment in itself uh, without uh, financial rewards coming from it. The muse loves the idea that people can access these writings any time of the day or night at no cost. Of course, I'd be delighted to get millions of dollars from it. I'm not against money, but um, on my deathbed, I think I will remember the fulfillment of reaching actual people more than I will remember uh, any income I derive from it. I feel I am writing for fellow mutants and myself not for the many certainly not for what Jung called mass man and the majority of the planet is mass man sometimes what stands in the way of creative fulfillment are the ego's standards of success if just a few people are deeply affected by my writings is that failure as dorothy canfield fisher says there is no larger small uh, there's no larger small against the backdrop of the infinite like we used to tell teachers, if, if you really reached one kid that whole year, um, on the deepest level, at least, you know, is that a failure? <clears throat> you know, it's, it says in the Jewish tradition, if you've saved one life, it's as if you've saved a whole world. So uh, we used to say in summer camp, if you made one friend, then it was a successful summer. So it's important how we define success. Uh, success does not have to mean ubiquitous popularity it could be reaching and deeply affecting just a few people. Well, a good example of that is the the woman I just quoted, Dorothy Canfield Fisher, who is a Vermont novelist earlier in the mid mid and early 20th century, I guess. And most people have not heard of her. Um, She was somewhat well-known at the time and was friends with people like Eleanor Roosevelt and um, Willa Cather but was always considered a major, minor, minor, major, that those annoying English major kind of terms. Um, But she had a huge effect on some, some people. Um, And an example would be my mom who considered Dorothy Canfield Fisher to be her third parent. And at the age of 87, she's still constantly rereading those novels, uh, practically knows them by heart and um, couldn't have had a huger influence um, at one point she wrote to Dorothy Canfield Fisher and, and got a wonderful, highly personal note back, um, that said how much it, it meant to her to receive the letter and so forth. So the idea is that <clears throat> for both artist and the person who is the appreciating that art, um, just one intense relationship with a reader, uh, for example, um, could be very powerful from the point of view of the I Ching, the keystone of relationship is to meet others halfway. If I didn't express myself or hid my writings in a draw, that would be meeting less than halfway. If I were an aggressive self-promoter, doing everything possible to push my work forward, the success mode of our culture, like a, like a Donald Trump or one of the other power mad whores for celebrity attention, that would be meeting more than halfway. My job is to create and put it out there where it can be found, it is up, other up to others to look for what they need. And so, basically, my rule of thumb—I I guess I should have written it out here—is that I focus on creating original content as the higher priority over marketing. Now, I'm not against marketing; I, I think that that could could be very wise in in many cases. I just won't make that the priority. So, I'm not going to deform the content for marketing purposes, and I'm not going to spend the peak time when I could be creative working on marketing stuff uh, at the cost of developing original content. That's the rule of thumb for me. One of the general lessons that can be derived from my experience of being locked out of Canada is that the Muse, like the DAO, of which it is a subset, can work by giving or by taking away. My relationship to photography has been governed or at least influenced by both. My father is a talented photographer, and I grew up in a home with lots of photographic equipment and a darkroom in the basement. Especially between the ages of 12 and 16, photography predominated as creative expression. When I was 20, just after graduating from college, I guess I'd refer to the story a large carousel tray containing my very best color slides was stolen or somehow disappeared unaccountably. This taking away was a negative inspiration and caused me to leave photography aside for more than 20 years, except on a very casual and informal basis. During that time, I still took some photos, mostly during wilderness expeditions and other travels, but I used amateurish cameras. During the spring of 1996, I was a volunteer living at a Navajo reservation near Big Mountain, Arizona. We were helping the family of a Navajo medicine man, myself and some friends, uh, trying to stay on their land despite the machinations of the Peabody Coal Company, etc. One day we were laying irrigation drip lines out in the extremely hot sun, and the word optical began to recur in my mind with an uncanny insistence. Optical, optical, optical. It occurred in my mind as a numinous object, dense with many layers of meaning, a power word, and I would see these associated images, too, when I would hear the word and kind of explode in my mind. For years following that afternoon, this word repeated itself occasionally. It always felt like someone out of my field of vision was bringing a vibrating tuning fork to my ear whenever it happened. There are many other layers of meaning to this, which I won't go into here, and which I am still unfolding. But one effect of this unexpected occurrence was that I became much more interested in photography again. The following spring of 97, I guess, I was camping out in the mountains of Santa Fe with my friend Daniel. We were working on an ecological project, and both the beauty of Santa Fe and the large photography library that is in Santa Fe were inspiring my increased interest in photography. I left our, camp- I left our campsite with Daniel. Uh, we had to get something from his truck. And when we returned, I saw that I had carelessly left my camera, not a very good one, but the only one I had, sitting on a picnic table where anyone could have taken it. No one had, but Daniel, whose nickname and turntablism performance name is Elf, told me that for someone so interested in photography, I should have a better camera. That was the last thing said between us as I got on my mountain bike to head down into Santa Fe, a thrilling all downhill ride with spectacular views. He was taking the truck down, but it was more fun for me to ride the bike down. Three or four minutes later, I was speeding down mountainous switchbacks and happened to notice a mud-covered lead foil film bag lying on the side of the road, just a a fragment of an image as I was going past it really fast. In the pre-911 era, you could put your film in these bags so that airport x-ray machines would not affect them. I already had one and this was all muddy and filthy, but something made me go back and, and like lose all that downward momentum on my bicycle and like turn around and go back. just an inner prompting. There have been many synchronicities and things coming up about photography that it seemed like this was a stone that had to be turned over. Uh, and I thought maybe there'd be some like old, totally spoiled, crushed film cassettes in there or something. Sacrificing the joy of my fast downward momentum, I stopped my bike and pedaled back uphill. The bag was filthy, looked like it had a few weeks of mud and dust on it. I opened the bag, and sparkling clean inside was a brand new camera, which listed at about $500 in 1997, with an instruction manual and three rolls of unexposed film. It was the most advanced version of the Canon ELF series of APS cameras that had just come out that year. Over the next two years, I used that camera constantly, during which time it survived some incredible mishaps, including, if you can believe this, getting washed in a washing machine after being left in a jacket pocket. Um, and uh, maybe I didn't explain it here, but uh, the reason why I mentioned that my friend's name is, nickname was Elf is because it was a Canon Elf. I dried the Elf out by putting some of those little packets of silica gel that come with vitamins and in shoeboxes, etc., inside of its case and wrapped it in a Ziploc bag. 24 hours later, it was working again. In 2000, I bought a much better camera, a Canon A2E, which I'm still using, or was using at the time. Now I have a, a digital Elf and I have a, um, a Nikon D200. There were a couple of accessories for this camera I really wanted, but I had already exceeded my camera budget. In 2002, as I was living in a rural part of british columbia and noticed in the local newspaper which had a tiny buy sell section that someone was selling at a very low price the exact two missing accessories specifically made for a canon a2e and this was like a tiny roll paper where it was like you know a wheelbarrow for sale you know 10 other things and like these two accessories i had always wanted for the canon a2e specifically made for that one camera I had never noticed photography equipment of any kind being advertised in this royal paper. When I called the seller up, it turned out that in the next month, there was only one specific day when he would be coming through my area and could bring the equipment. That date happened to be December 5th, my birthday. Of course, I recognized this as a synchronicity supporting my photography, but my reaction was slightly ambivalent. At the time, I was trying even more than usual to open a portal into Parallel Journeys, my unfinished fantasy epic. I was happy about this encouragement of my photography, but also felt a bit disrespected and misled by the muse. It was highlighting photography as part of my birthright, apparently. But what I really wanted was her magical encouragement toward Parallel Journeys. Nineteen days after this birthday, I was still hoping for a portal into Parallel Journeys to open. It was Christmas Eve, and we had just acquired a large screen, myself and some friends had acquired a large screen TV. My friend Dave had given me a boxed set, expanded DVD version of the first Lord of the Rings movie. The extended version was a great improvement on this already already great movie. But I had already seen the movie something like seven or eight times, including a viewing of the extended DVD version just a few days before. Everyone uh, wanted to see it on the the big screen TV, however, and so I joined them, not expecting too much from the experience. Um, A few minutes into the movie, I had another one of those 20 to 40 minute episodes. A cascade of life-changing insights and intuitions exploded into my mind. The theory that I had held for over 20 years about the ring symbolism of Tolkien's mythology reversed and turned in on itself in a manner of moments. And you could um, see the insights resulting from that in a still unfinished document. Um, I'm working on a revision of it. Uh, It's called Casting Precious into the Cracks of Doom, Androgyny, Alchemy, Evolution, and the One Ring. That night and the following morning, I outlined these new insights. The day before, someone among the fellowship of holiday guests staying in the house for Christmas had suggested that everyone would teach a class about something. So on Christmas Day, the movie fresh on everyone's mind, I taught a class on my new theories. A venue or audience for this new work had been set up without any contrivance on my part, though it turned out that no one else actually got around to teaching his or her class. I was both elated and a bit disappointed by these new insights. The trickster-like muse, whom I had been pressing for help with parallel journeys gave me a photography-based birthday gift, and now a non-fiction-oriented Christmas present. My ego was excited because I thought I could get this book done, meaning the one on the Tolkien mythology, before the last Tolkien movie came out, and that it would have great commercial appeal. I wanted to call this book Casting Precious into the Cracks of Doom, and had various subtitles for it. Now it's just under two years later, well, actually now add six years to that, The last Tolkien movie came and went last year, and I'm now about 75% finished with the core of the book, which will probably be a very uncommercial 40 or so um, pages in in length, Um, and that's Casting Precious. And the insights have also been spun off into some other short pieces, The Mutant vs. the Machine, Time and Tolkien's Elves, Tolkien and the Developmental Need for Evil, Wielding the One Ring, Stop the Hottie, all of them available, of course, on the website. I had been making steady progress on the Tolkien project until three days ago when the sudden need to write this essay about the muse happened. The sudden but complete detachment of the muse and the cessation of my obsessive enthusiasm were so absolute and decisive <clears throat> that those voices of self-criticism couldn't even get going. They were like squash balls hitting walls of thick foam rubber. They had no mounts. The energy source for this project which had been on, so on for many weeks, was off. The point is that the creative process continues, but out of ego control. The ego wants a, straight, light, straight line march of progress towards success, But the path of the creative is zigzag, diverse, roundabout, too obscure and convoluted for ego comprehension. I am coming to accept that finally, and instead of pining for parallel journeys, or what I think should be happening, I am learning to instead be grateful that the muse is always leading me somewhere interesting. Instead of letting my ego get frustrated because the muse is leading me somewhere different than what I expected, I'm starting to finally get it that unexpectedness is what makes a journey interesting. And I may have mentioned this before, but I think the idea is that uh, when the ego is not pressing me and demanding um, some unexpected direction. Well, that's the time when I can go back and finish up the things that got left unfinished because I was getting pulled in a different direction. To conclude this essay, I want to tell about some adolescent experiences I had with the muse that completely redirected the course of my life. Again, as I mentioned in the first paragraph of this essay, my purpose is not autobiographical, but to illustrate. Actually, I, I no longer quite agree with that. I think part of the purpose was autobiographical. I just was trying to uh, limit the muse. Uh, so I'm going to add a note related to that. Um, but to illustrate general principles about relating to the muse with the particular examples that instructed me. So here's the note. Rereading this in 2011, I see some muse censorship going on. I think part of the inspiration of the essay was not intent to be autobiographical, and defining it as merely, merely in service to writing about relating to the muse was another attempt to supervise the muse and keep it on the expected track. And I think it just served, happened to serve both purposes, to be both autobiographical and about relating to the muse with general principles. Voice from Underground One night during my first year of high school, I felt something prod me out of the deep sleep of a healthy 14-year-old boy at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Some irresistible inner prompting had me reaching toward my futuristic-looking Panasonic clock radio to switch on the sound. When I did so, I heard a voice coming out of the radio that sounded exactly like my own mind speaking in my head. I was stunned and wondered if I was still dreaming, but everything in the room felt so physical and real. The voice seemed to express my innermost thoughts, the thoughts I had not shared with anyone, and the thoughts and feelings expressed by the voice had what I thought were the unique perspective of my own mind and personality. Suddenly there was a station identification break and I found out what was going on. The station was WBAI FM, the station I'd tuned into far more than any other. WBAI was one of my main lines into the 60s and i had never encountered a radio station remotely like it before or since. It was basically run by hippies Nothing was too weird to be broadcast, and it was a fountain of creativity and novelty 24 hours a day in the 60s and 70s in New York City. On this particular night, WBAI was doing an all-night reading of Fyodor Dostoevsky's novella, Notes from Underground. At the time, I didn't know what to make of this experience, but made a mental note that one day I would have to find out who this Dostoevsky was— and how it could be that a Russian writer could so perfectly express, way back in the 19th century, the inner perspective of my mind. Education, numinous versus compulsory. The way most schools, including colleges and universities, are designed is directly antagonistic to relating to the muse. Your studies are not guided by the muse, but by a curriculum set by external authorities. They decide what you are to study, Or right and when there are exceptions to this authoritarian approach of course the most extreme are Sudbury schools where children were completely guided by their own enthusiasms they study or work whatever they choose on whatever they choose with whomever they choose and at their own pace one amazing finding about Sudbury schools is that no child who has ever been educated within the Sudbury model has ever developed dyslexia a possible implication is that dyslexia is an artifact of being forced to learn to read and write before an individual is ready, and individuals do vary considerably in the timing of their developmental stages. Societies tend to love one-size-fits-all standardization, and our society in particular loves the efficiency of the assembly line. <clears throat> now, by the way, I, don't, I didn't write it here, but there is a, a flaw I came to realize in the Sudbury model developmentally. And that is that um, it's an ideal kind of environment for self-actualized, self-initiating learners. It would have been great for me. It would have been great for many of my friends and lots of people I can think of. However, there's another type of person, and many of whom I taught in my teaching career, who really needs more structure to come from the outside, who just does not have that inner momentum to thrive in an environment like that. Because the Sudbury model didn't recognize that, and like all models thought it was ideal for all persons, um, they had a lot of trouble with sort of juvenile delinquent types who would just kind of run amok in in such a a liberal, um, permissive environment. For more related thoughts on education, see my article, Crossing the Great Stream, Education in the Evolving South, published by Holistic Education Review, and posted with their permission on the website. My education had been completely driven by external curricula until my third year of college, when I was 19 years old. Having taken care of my required courses, I discovered there was something called the College Scholars Program, where you could propose your own topic of study, and under the loose supervision of an advisor, could pursue your own research and write a dissertation that would be read by an interdisciplinary committee of professors, who would also cross-examine you on the subject and grade you. Finally, after preschool, elementary, junior high, high school, and two years of college, I was going to be allowed to follow my own creative enthusiasm. I decided that I would use this opportunity to study Dostoevsky. The regimented method of education may be good in some ways for mass man, for people who need to be structured from the outside, but for the self-actualizing creative person, it is like being slowly poisoned in a prison cell. Although I did pursue some of my own interests like photography and read my own books, not on the curriculum, a huge amount of my time was occupied by classes and mind-numbing homework. Many people, seeing that a young person is bright and creative, assume that schoolwork must be a breeze for them. This was true for my parents, who were remarkable whiz kids, child prodigies. But this was not true for me. It was completely artificial, oppressive, agonizing, and difficult for me to hold my attention on material that had no relation to my creative muse. If I were a child in school today, I would no doubt grasp for one of those horribly overused, and misapplied acronym labels, ADD, ADHD, to explain my sufferings. Now I can identify exactly what the trouble was. There was nothing wrong with my attention. When I was focused on something led by the creative muse, I could focus obsessively for hours on end. But when my mind was forced to process the boring, busy work and monotonous drudgery that passes for education... It was forever wandering off, forever trying to throw off the harness and run free. I did well in school, was particularly good at at taking tests, and escaped to college at age 16, but homework took me endless hours because it was so horribly difficult to force my mind to focus on uncreative drudgery. All these years later, it is still horrifying to think of this wasted time and effort, when I now see that I could have been far better off conducting my own education based on my own enthusiasms, working at my own tempo. This was also another reason why um, I had to leave teaching, I believe. Um, is uh, I had been, at, at first, for um, six of the eight years of my last teaching gig, which was on Long Island, working in alternative school, but then... Um, Uh, The last two years was full-time in the regular school, and the stack of illiterate papers was a very unacceptable type of work because uh, my mind was forced into a reality, a, a claustrophobic reality tunnel, where it was impossible to focus on anything else. I could be more content digging ditches and listening to audiobooks at the same time or thinking my own thoughts, but... When you are a creative person with a lot of inner content that needs to be processed and your mind is enslaved to a task that requires full attention but does not reward it in any creative way, that is a very unacceptable type of work. Uh, Whereas, say, dishwashing or something manual um, would not be. And so for me, there are two types of acceptable avocation. Uh, One is the intrinsically rewarding creative work and the other would be completely manual mechanical work during which I could listen to audiobooks or at least be free to think my own thoughts okay the muse and mutant intensive environments someone once said that every American school child knows that school is what interrupts their learning this was absolutely the case for me But there were very fortunate influences in my case as well. My parents were and are highly educated intellectuals with a great knowledge of the sciences and humanities. I grew up in a home where modern art, classical music, psychology, politics, science, and literature were topics of everyday conversation. My parents were and are skeptical analytical thinkers. And and sloppy thought, ungrounded assumptions, and poor expression had little chance of... Uh, getting past them. And uh, just another quick tangent off of that, this was very advantageous, especially for somebody who would innately be drawn toward the esoteric and the occult and the paranormal. Um, My mom, when she was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania in psychology, uh, was one of those persons who evaluated peer-reviewed studies and that kind of thing and knew a lot about statistics and probability. My dad also was very steeped in science and, but especially my mom who, when she evaluated all these different studies and particularly medical studies, she found that every study or scientific experiment that she evaluated was major, had major flaws in its methodology and particularly medical experiments. So there was just, constant schooling on like watching your assumptions and, and not making unfounded jumps in logic and, and, and this kind of thing. And, and it's put me in good stead with paranormal research where, um, and dealing with esoteric things where it's very easy to get lost in, um, ungrounded assumptions. And so you'll see some of that philosophy about paranormal research or esoteric research especially in uh, Carnival 2012 available on the website <clears throat> so this was an was a advantageous thing and this is consistent with some of the work in on creativity in Mihai sent Mihai's book on creativity that really it 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 comes out of a propitious environment the idea that it's just based on talent is does not hold up that um to really um advance you need a propitious environment in which you are surrounded by other creative people working in similar veins and so forth and that that is enormously helpful and and indispensable of course now that we have the internet um that can be available um much more irrespective of geography okay Another break was that after two hellish years, zoned into a junior high in the South Bronx, one of the worst and most violent schools in the history of public education, and I taught elsewhere in the South Bronx myself for six years, so I have a good basis of comparison, I passed a test to get into the Bronx High School of Science, which in those years might have been the best mutant hot spot on the planet, for people that age, filled with the brightest, most creative kids selected out of a 10 million person metropolis. Bronx signs had no football team, no proms, and no sadistic assistant principals on power trips trying to pay back the kind of kids that were more popular than them when they went to high school, a classic core motivation of many assistant principals and suburban police officers, I would later discover when I taught in the suburbs. The sex and power games, the toxic social wasteland of high school, was all but absent, or let's say it was muted. Although I lived close enough to walk to the school, kids commuted from all over the city by subway. No one had a car, and although it was the early 70s, the 60s were very much alive in the school. Teachers were often countercultural and brilliant. Conspicuous consumption and focus on clothes and possessions were scoffed at, and staff and students shared a bond of, a bond of brilliant creative enthusiasm about learning and took for granted that they were working toward the cutting edge of any field. The debate team I was part of was number one in the country year after year. Many of the kids from these years of Bronx science still seem larger than life and sage-like. I remember witnessing a conversation between some of the varsity debaters about whether debate competition was ethical, because weren't we wishing misfortune on our opponents? Instead of the parochial focus stereotypical of high school—girlfriend, boyfriend, clothes, haircut, cars, etc.—my high school colleagues thought about everything in historical, philosophical, ethical contexts, and related everything to the larger world and universe. As an experiment a few years ago, I took two yearbooks I had. One was, from, was the Bronx Science Yearbook for my senior year, 1974. And one was from the Long Island High School I taught in, W. Tresper Clark High School, 1988. I didn't let people see any part of the yearbook except the senior class individual mug shots, so they didn't know exactly where or when these faces were occurring. Although Clark was a significantly above average American high school, the difference in the two groups of pictures was astounding to everyone who saw them. The Bronx Science kids were described as looking so interesting as as such characters with highly individual quirks and brilliant talents, while the Long Island high school kids had, had faces and hairstyles that seemed so commonplace and uniform, the images blurred in your mind as generic high school stock. The point of this is not an excess of school loyalty to sell you on the Bronx science of the early 70s, but to illustrate a central principle for relating to the muse. When they asked Timothy Leary... When he was dying, what was the single most important thing he wanted to communicate to others while at the edge of the grave? He said, be careful about where you film the movie of your life. As they, as they say in retail, the three most important factors are location, location, location. At my present age, the best location is mostly solitude. But especially when you are developing your creativity, it is crucial to locate yourself around other creative, free-thinking mutants. The human environment, the minds that you are sharing space with, is a factor that can never be underestimated. Much creative work is done by self-actualized people in isolation. But many creative movements come out of collaborative alliances, hermetic circles of gifted mutants synergizing and inspiring each other. A good example is Impressionism, which changed the way we saw color and form forever. This movement arose from a small group of friends and painters who were intimately involved with each other. Monet was apparently the leading personality and genius of this group, but he was nourished by the group energy as much as the others. Although at this more self-actualized age, I work mostly in isolation, I live in Boulder, Colorado, a mutant hotspot, where I feel myself in a field of creative, active, healthy, vital happening energy. But I would say probably even more, I live in the environment of electronic communications and communicate with other people via phone, Skype, internet, Facebook, whatever. Fellowship versus solitude. Today, geographic location is partly, not entirely, mitigated by the non-locality of cyberspace, but there is still something to be said for the creative inspiration of live 3D, non-virtual contact with other creative people. On the other hand, people are also the greatest distraction for the creative person. So much social contact is stereotyped, mechanical, and low-intensity. Every day, it seems, I get new messages about the need to withdraw from the more random kind of social contact, situations where small talk preponderates predominates the lifeblood of the social personality, but poison for a creatively self-actualizing introvert. People differ in their ability to shut out distractions, and some say that a heightened sensitivity to distractions is a sign of neurological deficit. At least my mom has told me that. But I think that an extreme aversion to distracting influences is sometimes a healthy immunological response. The creative person needs to be the sovereign of his imaginal space, needs to protect his kingdom from random invasion. The muse is a jealous, demanding, possessive partner. High-intensity high intensity creative work wants to proceed without distractions and interruptions, and it can be crucial to arrange your life so as to allow for that. At the present moment, practical necessity is demanding that I work on my laptop in the back of a coffee shop. Now that was in 2005 when I was still living in an 18-foot RV, and so uh, I needed the electricity of the coffee shop. In the recent past, I used to like, at least sometimes, writing in coffee shops. When Seligman and others conducted research into happiness, one of the most consistent results they found is that people were happier in groups, and most unhappy, most subject to what they called psychic entropy, when alone. This proved true of even the people who claim to prefer solitude. There is stimulation for us social mammals in seeing and being in, even the anonymous company of others. There is the eye candy stimulation of the occasional attractive person going by, etc. But my muse isn't going for that anymore. I have to wear earplugs and or headphones with music to shut out the talking, and the wavelength of caffeinated socializing energy is not what I need to surround me. So, the lesson to summarize is this. Now, I seem to go in cycles with that because last summer I was doing a lot of work in coffee in a uh, lo- lo- different local cop- coffee shop. Now, you know, the last time I tried it, I lasted about five minutes, and, and uh, maybe it's because it's the winter. Um, I seem to feel much more powerful in isolation. Um, maybe in the warmer weather, There is a feeling of like life is going by without me. I have to be out there in the world, and the the allure of the coffee shop as a workplace uh, returns. But I certainly wouldn't be in the coffee shop if I was doing high-level, say, fiction writing or something like that. So the lesson to summarize is this. To follow the muse, it is essential to have contact with other creative people but it may be even more essential to have solitude available when you need it. The Muse as Developmental Catalyst The Muse led me on a gigantic tangent I didn't anticipate about education, location, and social boundaries. Now back to Dostoevsky and my College Scholars project as a 19-year-old junior in college. Finally, there was a confluence of propitious factors leading to that year initiating my real education. I had creative allies. Students and teachers who recognized me and supported what I was doing. College was paid for, and I had an incredibly busy schedule, but much of my time was taken up with creative, enriching work. And finally, I had one class I could structure myself. I wanted to read... Oh, let me just stop there, because I, I think I went too glibly past college was paid for. That was a huge advantage. And of course, even in this highly ranked private college, room and board and tuition and everything was only like six grand a year. But I was lucky to have parents that could pay for my you know, entire education and graduate school and, and so forth. And, and in a lot of the creative young people I, I meet today, paying for school is um, one of the greatest obstacles uh, in their pursuing creativity and education and having to, I don't think it's ideal to have to work a job while in school because school, at least the way I did it was the most, uh, time consuming, um, though interesting job I ever had. Um, so I think it's very unfortunate that we, our society has lots of money for, uh, wall street bonuses and so forth, but, uh, does not provide enough in the way of scholarships and funding to young people who want an education and are forced to either work jobs and or come out of their education hopelessly mired in debt and so forth. So this is a huge uh, social cultural theme going on right now that I don't want to just pass over. Okay. Okay. college was paid for, and I had an incredibly busy schedule, but much of my time was taken up with creative, enriching work. And finally, I had one class I could could structure myself. I wanted to read Dostoevsky. I was following the path of the numinous, and I wanted to find out more about the voice that was coming out of the radio. But I didn't fully realize that yet. My original proposal was that I would write about Dostoevsky's St. Petersburg, a city that attracted both his fascination and loathing. Because it was one of the first cities to be completely pre-planned, Dostoevsky saw it as an artificial world, a landscape of the soulless ego. This was a perfectly intriguing subject, but it was not where the muse wanted me to go, ultimately. Fairly soon into the project, I came to realize that what was really numinous, what I really had to investigate, was why that voice in the radio sounded like the inside of my own mind. So as I came to read Dostoevsky, I found that I felt something in common with a number of essential characters, not just the man from underground, but also Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment and a few others. I had only taken one psychology course, the introductory survey course that everybody takes, Psych 101. But I, had, I was starting to discover that my mind was psychologically oriented and that I seemed to have psychological intuitions and thinking without having been trained in it. My mother was a psychologist for 44 years, uh, so I did grow up hearing and overhearing some psychology, but much of my insight seemed to come from the inside. Reading Dostoevsky novels, I began to use certain of his characters to build a psychological model of a personality type I called the profound egocentric. And you can see the original... A paper available on my website, Dostoevsky and the Profound Egocentric. While I was building this psychological model, there was a decisive moment, perhaps the first of those twenty to forty minute zones when an entire vista of awareness opened up. It was at night, and I was sitting on a park bench by myself on a path that led to the college library. Suddenly there was a vast coalescing of insights and intuitions, everything seemed to come together. I saw how this personality type worked in the Dostoevsky characters and how it worked in me, how it limited me, and how I was now in a situation with allies where I could begin to transcend those limitations. This was for the first... So again, it's one of the things that led to the breakthrough was the social environment, the supportive social environment. This was, for the first 19 years of my life, an epiphany, a breakthrough into... Um, an unprecedented self-knowledge. I felt the I felt the inner tectonic plate shift and and at that exact moment on that park bench I felt then and feel now that my adult consciousness began. To this day when I look back at the landscape of memory that was the dividing line, the memories that that come after that park bench are of a different sort as they are seen through the eyes of an analytical self-awareness that had not really come into its own before I sat down on that bench. This is one of the greatest reasons to follow the creative muse, as demanding and impossible as she can be. The path toward creative realization can also run parallel to the path of self-realization. You may be led not merely through the labyrinth of a particular field of inquiry or art form, but may also travel more deeply into the labyrinth of your human incarnation, and may find yourself closer to who you really are and what you came here to do and the more deeply you travel into yourself the more likely you are to come back from that journey with something of universal value to other humans unlikely help from a dead swiss guy my success with the profound egocentric project was the necessary precursor intrapsychically and academically to a more ambitious project which took the form of a philosophy honors paper entitled Archetypes of a New Evolution, again, available uh, on the website. The path of discovery involved in this project continues to this present moment. And in fact, I've really come full circle uh, with that time because now I'm working on the, the book, on the singularity archetype. So I feel more, I'm more engaged in um, those discoveries than I've been since 1978 when I wrote that paper the path of discovery involved in this project continues to present moment retrospectively the life I lived before I wrote that paper had led up to it with a great deal of thematic unity various paranormal experiences and so forth and since I began work on it at age 20 I had been aware of its meaning as the defining theme in my life or one of the defining themes I should say And that theme involves paranormal life experiences, relationships, teaching, fiction and nonfiction writing, and so forth. Like Bilbo laying his hand on the one ring in the darkness of a cave, this path began with an encounter with the numinous and has led me down a rabbit hole that has yet to run out of unexplored depths. I've already written about some of the numinous encounters that led to this paper and thoughts on Jung, and I'll excerpt a relevant part of it here. Actually, I'm going to change that to an excerpt from uh, the book version, that I think uh, probably tells the story better. Uh, Now that I've introduced the singularity archetype, um, which I had just done in the book, I tell the story of how I encountered the singularity archetype for the first time in the external world. This encounter should not be viewed as an autobiographical tangent so much as a case history of what an ongoing relationship with this archetype looks like. It was 1969 or 1970, and I was 12 or 13 years old. It was a summer afternoon, and I was sitting in the tiny breakfast room, an annex to the kitchen of my family home in the Bronx, watching black-and-white television. A sci-fi movie was coming on, a 1960 British black-and-white movie with the arresting title, Village of the Damned. I'm pretty sure my dad was sitting behind me and that he also watched the movie. Nothing I had ever seen on television was so mesmerizing. The story and the serious and intelligent tone of the film were magnetic for me. As the film opens, UFOs are detected in the upper atmosphere of the Earth. At the same time, in a few populated locations on Earth, perfectly circular areas of a mile or two across, all the human inhabitants fall unconscious for 24 hours. Those who weren't on motorcycles or operating dangerous machinery awakened from their unconsciousness, disoriented but healthy. We see the anomaly from the perspective of this one English village, Midwich, that undergoes the phenomenon. After the anomaly occurs, life goes back to relative uh, normality. A few weeks later, however, the village doctor notices another anomaly. All the females in the village, including virgins and other sexually inactive women, have become pregnant. These anomalous pregnancies come to term more rapidly than normal. Okay, maybe this is more of a tangent than I wanted, but I'm going to go with it. About 50 exceptionally healthy babies are born, and with unusual speed, they grow into children who have large golden eyes and platinum blonde hair. These children are exceptionally intelligent, are telepathically aware of each other, and have paranormal abilities. More about the film later. Although I didn't share this with my dad or with anyone, the film left me stunned and shaken. It was a life-changing encounter, and the experience had a religious intensity. It was like this film came from inside of me. I felt the core of my being vibrate, and I knew that something of the greatest significance had occurred. Nothing that I had ever seen or heard before in the outer world struck certain of the deepest and most hidden parts of my being as this film had. I felt the stir of destiny like a field of crackling electricity all around me. How did they know? Where had this film come from? I guess this is a good description of the encounter with the Numinous. Village of the Dam was my first encounter with a full-blown expression of the singularity archetype in the outer world. I had already had a few shattering paranormal experiences, one of which involved a brush with death. And you can see um, Mutant Convergence uh, document on the website for the details of that uh, paranormal experience. I was also immersed, even at, at 12, in, in books about parapsychology, UFO, and UFOs, and other paranormal phenomena. There was raw experience and contact with some related ideas and phenomenon, but Village of the Damned was my first experience of the singularity archetype as an artifact of contemporary culture. It was also expressed in one of the most potent carriers of mythology ever created, the movie. A few months ago, and this was written in the summer of 2010, somewhere and there were many other 12-year-olds wearing 3D glasses, having an experience of religious intensity, watching the movie Avatar. When I was 13 years old, there was a life-changing revelation about the nearly fatal paranormal experience, which had occurred when I was 10 years old. The revelation had spiritual dimensions and filled me with a sense of the profound meaningfulness and high stakes of life. And I get into that also in Mutant Nexus the next year when i was 14 some more key anomalous experiences occurred a second encounter with the singularity archetype expressed in potent mythological form occurred when i was a student at the bronx high school of science this time the medium was a science fiction novel arthur c Clarke's masterpiece childhood's end my battered paperback copy of childhood's end was like a ball of light glowing in my hands besides the content What was most disturbing was that somehow what I thought were my most creative and original uh, science fiction ideas, ideas that I expected to write about one day, had somehow shown up in this tattered paperback. I flipped back to the copyright page, 1953. This book was written four years before I was born. How could such a thing be possible? This was probably the year I encountered Clark's other masterpiece, 2001 his visionary collaboration with Stanley Kubrick that brought the singularity archetype to the big screen with cutting-edge industrial light and magic special effects. Although the film came out in 1968, I probably first saw it as a revival in 1971, but that's a guess. Another key anomaly um, occurred during my 14th year, though it will not be clear until later why it was directly related to the singularity archetype. I felt something prod me out of the deep sleep. I'm re-describing this incident, but I think, it, uh, I think it'll be warranted. Out of the deep sleep of a healthy 14-year-old boy at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, some irresistible inner prompting had me reaching toward the futuristic-looking Panasonic clock radio to switch on the sound. When I did so, I heard a voice coming out of the radio that sounded exactly like my own mind speaking in my head. I was stunned. And I wondered if I was still dreaming, but everything in the room felt so physical and real. The voice seemed to express my most innermost thoughts, the thoughts I had not shared with anyone. The th- um, and the thoughts and feelings expressed by the voice had what I thought were the unique perspective of my own mind and personality. Suddenly there was a station identification break, and I found out what was going on. The station was FM, the station I tuned into far more than any other. The WBAI of the 60s and 70s was unlike any radio station that has ever existed before or since. Referred to in a New York Times magazine piece as an anarchist circus, one station manager was jailed in protest and the staff in protest at sweeping proposed changes of another station manager seized the studio facilities then located in a deconsecrated church as well as the transmitter located atop the Empire State Building. That was a Wikipedia. Tuning into WBAI at random, I could find almost anything going on and some of it was mind-blowing. For example, there was a popular show run by hilariously militant lesbians. Males were not even permitted to call the show, but they did anyway, and always to tell the militants how much they loved and supported them. In return, the lesbia- the lesbians showered them with verbal abuse well, Don't you worry your pretty little head about it, they would say as they hung up on the male collars. As we'll see with this in many other examples, a source of cultural novelty is also likely to be a source for strange and sometimes synchronistic encounters with the singularity archetype. And it's also a source of inspiration for the creative muse to be in such an atmosphere. Some of the stranger. Radio shows of that era of New York City played an almost internet-like role in informing me about strange subjects. The most significant of these was the famous Long John Nebel all-night radio show, a magnet for all subjects uh, paranormal-related and the forerunner of Art Bell and the Coast to Coast AM franchise. I pulled many all-nighters during my high school years, experimenting with photography in our basement darkroom, while listening to reports of the bizarre and anomalous on the radio. After the WBAI radio um, station identification break, I found out that what seemed like telepathic radio was actually an all-night live reading from Dostoevsky's haunting novella, Notes from Underground. When I was 19 and a junior in college, I had the first chance of my academic career to do some independent research. I'd always meant to find out who this Dostoevsky guy was and how he seemed to be able to write in a way that uncannily evoked the inner contents of my mind. And forgive some of the repetition, I think there's enough new stuff here to warrant it. As with the other encounters, Dostoevsky novels were cases of the firewall supposed to exist between inner and outer, blurring out in a wide open portal. And that's a point of connection with the muse, because when... You're inspired by the muse, there tends to be that blurring of inner-outer going on. And there has to be if you're going to be working with a medium, which is something, an artifact in the outer world, in which you're going to blur with your inner content. Thinking about the psychology of Dostoevsky characters, while sitting on a bench at night in a quiet part of the college campus, I crossed a developmental horizon and experienced the beginning of my adult consciousness. It was such a decisive change that memories before and after that moment have a decidedly different quality as my fundamental level of self-awareness transformed. The threshold occurred as a cascade of insights which revealed a psychological model and type that characterized myself and many of Dostoevsky's key characters. I called this type the profound egocentric, but had no idea how it connected to my other obsessions related to the singularity archetype. Having successfully, I thought, penetrated the Dostoevsky anomaly in the last semester of my senior year at college, i just turned 20, I set out to understand the strange, uncanny significance I sensed in Village of the Damned and Childhood's End. Unlikely help offered itself to me during the course of my studies. The chairman of the philosophy department, though I was an English major, had become my benefactor and opened doors for me in a highly conservative academic environment, allowing me to pursue interdisciplinary research projects into obscure shadowy areas. But it was actually my mom, a psychologist whose career spanned 44 years, who provided the crucial suggestion that I read what a Swiss psychiatrist named Carl Jung had to say about the archetypes and the collective unconscious. I looked him up in the encyclopedia and wondered what this dead Swiss guy who was born in the 19th century and was the son of a minister could possibly tell me a Jewish kid from the Bronx about my obsession with certain works of science fiction. And so I came to stand before the many elegant black volumes of the Princeton-Bollingen edition of Jung's collected works. I scanned the index volume for a few minutes and came across a late work, Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the sky, published when I was a few months old. That was a bit of a shock, as UFOs were a major part of the fantasies in my esoteric research. Jung's Flying Saucer book was included in Volume 10 of the collected works, Civilization and Transition, a title that has always struck me as both ominous and an almost comic example of Swiss understatement. The UFO subject seemed to haunt Jung near the end of his life. At the end of the book, it seemed like he couldn't let go of the subject. There was an afterword, followed by an epilogue, followed by a supplement. As I glanced through the supplement, I felt the air crackling with electricity again, and my eyes dilated in amazement. Jung had devoted the final supplement to analyzing mythological layers of meaning in the British science fiction novel The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham. That was the novel that Village of the Damned was based on. It was like... Uh, the dead Swiss guy had stepped out of the bookcase like a holographic projection of a wizard bearing a torch, and he was looking over my shoulder and saying, yes, I was fascinated by that one too, and here's what I thought. From that moment forward, Jung became my mentor in unraveling the mystery of the singularity archetype. Even then, however, I could see that Jung's supplement on the Midwich cuckoos with its strange placement of an afterword in an epilogue seemed to have been the hastily thrown-together afterthoughts of a restless mind obsessed with a subject on which there could be no closure. Jung was writing near the end of his life, and the flying saucer mythology he was studying was only in its infancy. Jung did not, by the way, assume that UFOs were merely hallucinations. He noted that they often reflected radar, and wondered aloud if they might not be physical exteriorizations of the collective unconscious. Jung's supplement spent two paragraphs summarizing the novel, and then just two paragraphs speculating about some of its implications and mythological motifs. Some of Jung's observations paralleled my own. I sensed, as Jung did, that unlike Arthur C. Clarke, Wyndham was viewing the singularity archetype from the fearful vantage of the old form. Jung's brief study ends with a sentence, also the last sentence of the entire book, that seems to reflect the state of extreme, unfinished ambiguity that Jung was feeling about the whole subject. Thus, the negative end of the story remains a matter for doubt. What a strange sentence to end a book with. At the same moment that I recognized Jung as my mentor and would soon discover that I needed to stand on his shoulders to get a clearer view of the mystery, I also sensed the unfinished place where he had left things. Amazingly, he had left off at exactly the place where I had begun. The finished product of my initial investigation was a philosophy honors paper called Archetypes of a New Evolution, which I finished late in the spring of 1978. So, um, I hope that didn't exceed your patience, but that was a, um, a more thorough description of that encounter than in the written essay version of Path of the Numinous of uh, how I um, was led into a large part of my life's work. So, uh, concluding. The muse is drawing the curtain closed on this discourse on her. I'm sure that there was some narcissistic motivation in all this self-disclosure, but I hope that aspects of my long, troubled, and blessed relationship with the muse have general implications as well. If you are seeking to follow your creative muse, I salute you. Look into what others in your particular field of creative endeavor have gone through. Rolome's classic, The Courage to Create, has a lot to say on the sub- these subjects, though I've only read a few tiny excerpts myself. Emerson's Self-Reliance and The American Scholar are guaranteed to reward your attention. Probably the most thorough scientific inquiry into um, creativity is sent Mihai's Creativity, Flow, and the Psychology of Discovery and Invention. Still working my way through it, and if you check back, I may add a discussion about this book in the near future. This is probably not my last word on the subject, as I am writing about a relationship in progress, and new adaptations and realizations no doubt lay ahead of me. I would be greatly interested in hearing anything you may have learned about the muse in your own relationship to the creative process. Next time maybe I will incorporate more examples than my own. Until then, may the path of the numinous rise up to meet you and may you follow the muse down the road that goes ever on and on. So, thank you for your infinite patience in listening to this longer than expected podcast of the path of the numinous, living and working with a creative muse. If you have any Feedback, uh, feel free to send that to Jonathan Zapp at hotmail.com. And anyway, this is Jonathan Zapp of Zapporacle.com here in the high desert of Boulder, Colorado, signing off. Thank you for participating.